stuff we're going to make up on the fly and joining me hawaiian brian the podcasting lion the king of the arcadian vanguard podcast network mr co-host to you he can tell you the who what where when why and how much the great brian last everybody aloha jim a pleasure to be here once again i'm excited to find out what games you have in store for us here on the show this will be news to me too well, I don't, we're going to make it up as we go along. I've got an email, and we've got some things to talk about. I don't know what people are thinking. And honestly, right now, I'm not sure I care what people are thinking, because my get-up-and-go has got up and went. Over the past a very strenuous past couple of days, assigning the action figures, passing the boxes off to the feather bottoms, we'll talk about that in a minute. I've, I've also I've talked to... The, the contractor and the associated vendor that it was about my replacement window and doors for the uh, remodeling project around the castle here later on this year. I think we've decided instead to rebuild the rest of the house around the windows and doors we were going to have to be replaced because it'll be cheaper. So we're in the <laughs> wrong business. You're going to build the rest of the house around the windows? That's right. We're tearing everything else out. <laughs> And we're going to rebuild the entire rest of the house around the replacement doors and windows that we were going to get. Instead, we'll just keep those because apparently now the window business is the business to be in. Windows and doors. Windows and potentially awnings might figure in there. too. I'm not sure. Get in that business, Brian. You got a lot of kids. Well, you know what's interesting? Get them in the window business. Yeah, I'm thinking about it right now. You know, we've seen wrestlers use tables. We've seen wrestlers use doors. Are there wrestlers that have used <laughs> windows in a match in the ring? Not running someone through a car window, but an actual window in the ring. Well, you, the, the, Brian, where have you been, son? Where have you been? The garbage wrestlers, the deathmatch folks, they do plates of glass match and panes of glass. and That's not a window. It was just a giant sheet of glass. I've seen them do pizza cutters and they do barbed wire and everything else. But does anyone actually just... You Bring know, the window frame and yeah, all. Yeah, go to Windows everything. by Anderson, get a <laughs> ready-made window. Yeah, just... well, as a matter of fact, yeah, yeah, son of a bitch. That, that's why they don't, because those Anderson folks, they, they, these things are prized possessions. You need to buy a Fabergé egg before you get one of these Anderson windows. We're probably still going through with it, but it was a shock. It's gonna be, we're, I'm going to stand and stare at my windows. But yeah, that's why they don't use them, because they cost too goddamn much. You know, actually, on the one of the last, what was it? It was one of the last MLW tapings that I did about three years ago. I think it was it was either in Chicago or Milwaukee, and they brought in in the back doors, just unfinished doors from Home Depot with no knob, no hinges, just the no stain paint, just an unfinished door. <laughs> And I said, oh, okay, what uh, are we, shop class? What's going on? They said, well, we can't get tables anymore. 
I said, what? You can't get a fucking table. Apparently, and this was before the pandemic, but apparently the tables, the good tables that you would get at Home Depot or Lowe's or the great hardware chain of your choice, you can't get the six-foot tables. I've seen people try, besides the fact that it looks like it should be Cowboy Lang and Lord Littlebrook trying to break the six-foot table. It, it, they don't break well because they're too short. Uh, who was it? One of the green girls the other day on AEW uh, choke slammed or power bombed one of the other girls on the end of the table instead of in the middle. And it didn't break because she landed right on the legs on that side and just went oof and just the soul left her body. Uh, but anyway, so you got to get the eight foot tables and then you also you got to get the regular old particle board, not like for mica that you can drive a fucking Volkswagen across and some shit. Apparently there was a shortage of these good, cheap, breakable tables. And so they got doors. I said, wait a minute. I said, but even stretching credulity, incredulity, flammable, inflammable, whatever, even stretching the believability the preposterosity of the fact that there's more than one extra announcers or timekeepers table stowed under the ring. You got a stack of four or five of them. And even ignoring that, at least there would be a reason for another table when the timekeepers table gets knocked over or the announce desk or whatever, you've got a backup. But why would there be a door underneath, uh, an unfinished door with no hinges and no knobs Underneath the wrestling ring. You know what he told me? No, I don't know. He said, because we can't get a table. <laughs> I said, all right, then. What were we talking about? <laughs> what happens if there's a door shortage? I guess then we've got to move on to just unfinished planks and, and put them to like put, lash a raft together. Oh my God, he's, it's going to be a raft. The first guy to go through the raft. But what if one day like the contractors and the home builders get together and realize it's the wrestlers that are screwing them out of all these materials they need, causing a shortage, raising the prices. There's a war we didn't know we needed. Wrestlers versus carpenters. Because <clears throat> everybody knows <laughs> it takes a, any jackass can <laughs> kick a barn down, but it takes a carpenter to build one. Um, but anyway, so what, what do you want to talk about? Oh, I, well, this is your yeah. show. This is it's your show. Nice I, I, I wouldn't want to blame me already. Today. I wouldn't want to put my thoughts and views. You in wouldn't want to frontier. No, 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 no. Get all uppity and antsy and try to just throw your own shit in here. It's my show. So already you're putting the blame squarely where it belongs today. I've had a stressful week doing the action figures and, and running the castle around here and trying to get some things. And a week, I just talked to you two and a half days ago, almost three, on your show. Maybe that's why I'm so fresh out of topics. Well, we're going to talk about the few things that we've seen since then. And I have a couple of emails and we got topics from the, the interwebs. I, got th I forgot to do this last week, but I want to thank Gavin. At main event belts across the pond, but it's maineventbelts.com. Guess what he sent me? A complete as a as a free gift. 
not even a parting gift. We were, we were never together in that way. So we didn't have to part, but I'm fond of him now. Guess what he sent me? A main event belt. Well, that wasn't hard to goddamn figure out, but what would the belt be of? What specificity of the belt is there? Well, if we're talking about things you talk about on the air, is it, it would either be a disgusting pizza or maybe a moat or. (sighs) Yeah, the moat championship. I just won the moat heavyweight title. That'd be a contested championship. You got the Monroe brothers down there by the moat, your neighbor and all of his gravel. The other neighbor in her ditch. The other neighbor in a ditch, a Mustang just flying there's, over at random times. There's going to be some <laughs> body end up in one of these natural orifices out here. There's a cave over two doors over. They got a little cave uh, next to the cabin that uh, they set up there years ago. Anyway, but no, he sent me a Jim Cornette Louisville Lip Championship belt, custom made. It's got a, the main plate has me and all of my glory in the red and yellow outfit that uh, the folks know from my original action figure and seen on television so many times. And the leather is red on the front, yellow on the back. The side plates have uh, my various designs. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye. I'm a Jim Cornette guy, that type of thing. It's an amazing piece of work. And, and he sent that as a, a wonderful gift for my many years of service to the community. It's be- see, you don't you don't get a gold watch in wrestling. You get a a main event belt. That's very cool. That's very very nice. Maineventbelts.com. I've said that three times now. I've probably paid for it by now, at our going advertising rates. You mentioned the look you have on the belt. Is there a specific outfit you prefer being? seen in public like if any photos are out there <laughs> or if someone's going to draw a picture of you is there a specific look you want um well it depends on what they're going for i mean i know that i don't look the same as i did 35 years ago i've lost a little hair i'm a little lighter now than i was then i love saying that uh yeah i've lost some weight i've lost a little hair but i don't change much we were actually uh, a figures toy company and I were talking about future projects and they said, well, if we make a, uh, you know, a, a, a modern day Jim Cornette figure, we don't really have to change the face. You kind of look the same. I said, how are you going to make them salt and pepper my hair? Are we dealing with artists over there that are hand painting these things? Or is it like when you go to the spaghetti factory and order something special and they say, sir, we don't have chefs, we have cooks. Otherwise, otherwise than my hair, I look the fucking same. Back to your question. What was it? I remember what it was. Um, so it depends on the era. I, uh, obviously, in the 80s with the Midnight Express, I love the, uh, the couple of color combinations that I've been known for. So the one, the red and yellow that has been on the and the red and green, the Christmas variant figures. That's why we did those. And the one of my more famous outfits is the bloody white coat. That's why we did that. I love the the pink and red suit. I was going to ask you about that one. Suit. Yeah. That was the one I was going to ask you about. Yeah. The pink and red raw debut with Bobby Heenan. I mean, you know, I was thinking back to the, because I knew that, you know, besides the fact I'm debuting on Raw, I'm going to be standing there next to Bobby. And I was thinking back to all the 
outlandish warm-up suits and things he used to wear when I saw him as a kid, and I went with the 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 pink and the you know the red, etc. So the uh, and then again, and Bobby went with a windbreaker. <laughs> well, that he was he was rawing at that point. <laughs> rawing. <laughs> and besides that, it was a miserable fucking. 150 degree building and he was he was on the downhill slide there remember he was leaving shortly afterwards so it wasn't like he was you know all in at that point but we we loved our time but anyway that suit and some of the more modern stuff my you know my announcer outfit or whatever which is kind of more color appropriate i was always color coordinated this a lot of the colors weren't appropriate but that's uh, some of those suits. I like those. It just depends on what era they're going for. And now I can be depicted in a cornet face shirt and I don't have to worry about you wearing a tie. That's been really the mission of my whole life. Get to where you don't have to wear a tie. So do you like or not like your early look? Like when it was more preppy, more outlandishly rich as opposed to, you know, somewhat effeminate in terms of the colors? <laughs> You know, it was like very. Wait a minute, wasn't it fem- I thought it was just pink and red. Very- well, goddamn, it goes together. You can see a Jimmy Hart would wear that, or other masculine yeah. men such as him. <laughs> I guess I, um, you know. Now that I think about it, I don't remember Jimmy Hart wearing that in Memphis either. Well, he had a better wardrobe than you in Memphis. Well, no. When I first started. Besides the fact you asked about the uh, the preppy outfit, yes, yeah, the three piece suits and yeah. yes, well, especially when I was very young and and very, you know, mama's boyish looking. Uh, but also, I've told you the story. The deal, I had no suits whatsoever when they when Jerry Jarrett told me if you want to be a manager, come to TV next week wearing a suit. Right, I had zero suits, so I went out and rushed and bought a couple. But then Mike Duncan, who was Christine Jarrett's nephew, had been a television announcer and commentator for a lot of Knicks TVs in Alabama and Tennessee for years before that. It was at that time was the weekly ring announcer in Louisville. But his daytime job was he worked at this men's clothing store down at the Hickory Hollow Mall in Nashville. And. Let's just put it that well, I mean, the statue, the statue of limitations has run out on this anyway, and Mike's passed away. So what the fuck? And I was a struggling rookie wrestling manager in need. Mike, being smart to the wrestling business, said, you need some. And also, I debuted in the middle of fucking August, right? But one of the suits that I bought, because I didn't know fucking suits from apple butter, as they say. Actually, no one's ever said that. I just did. I bought a fucking heavy wool suit that you'd wear in the goddamn Alaskan tundra in the middle of whale season in January. It was the hottest. I could put it on in a goddamn air-conditioned room and be sweating. So Mike said, you need some good clothes, and you don't have a lot of money to spend on them. Come see me. So it was a men's clothing store in a nice, fashionable mall. I wasn't going to be able to get the pink slacks and the zabadon everything but he got me rich kid preppy type clothes and the deal was he just he'd have me pick out and or he'd pick out everything in the place for me and the ties and this matches with that and the jacket and the pants or whatever 
And he'd have this giant stack of shit. And I'm thinking this is going to be fucking, you know, a thousand dollars. And he'd take it because he was the manager at the time and the employees wasn't looking at him and he didn't know, they didn't know what was going on. He'd just, as he's talking to me, ring up every third item. They'd hear a ding, ding. He'd, he'd pass by a sport coat and a pair of pants and ring up a fucking tie for $15 back then, right? So I got this, my first year's worth of clothing from, uh, you know, the, the store in Nashville on the one-third discount plan. And then I got smartened up the next spring, if you went to the stores in Louisville, they had the derby clothes, the red jackets, the green jackets, the fucking colorful stuff, right? And that's where in a golf store, you could get the ridiculous colored Sansa belt pants because yes, originally I looked totally legitimate as a rich kid putsy manager, but besides the fact that the three-piece suits got hot and also expensive, and the, the colorful stuff was cheaper, seasonal, and easier to replace, and the sans belts had more give to them because they were polyester. Once I started wearing the fucking colored shit, people just went insane. Like, what the... Like, I had kicked their dog on the way by their house and then thrown feces on their mother just because I was wearing that... So I said, well, fuck you, then I'll have some more of this shit. And the, the yachting cap and all the other bullshit was just, you know, yeah. So anything I could, anything I wore that people threw shit at, commented on negatively, told me I looked like a piece of shit or whatever the case, and I got more of that. There were some times in world class, and it's on TV, that's how I know, where you just look pure evil. Like you would just... <laughs> The way you were dressed, and you must have been miserable being in Dallas knowing everything else that you could be doing right now, and you just, like, snarl. You're not even, like, <laughs> the usual Jim Cornette. You look like you don't want to be there, and you're just nasty. And that that was, by the way, that was the <laughs> fucking dwarf we were trying to think of. Snarly was the one we missed the other day. That's right. Uh, but, yeah, well, no, that, that's, it. again, one thing I hadn't had a lot of experience in at that point was television with close-ups because in on memphis tv yes in the studio but i'd been the rookie you know in training at that point we go to mid-south yeah they got close-ups on our promos but the you know the irish mcneil boys club two camera setup for mid-south television was not revolutionary in the television industry it got the point across but when the world-class production and they got the cameras at ringside when shit's going on and the match is going on, or right before the match, we're getting ready, and the camera's up in your face. That's why, okay, I need to let these people know that I have some type of malicious intent. And then I would watch the tapes back and see where it picked us up and caught us. And then I'd, you know, obviously I already knew to watch for the tally light, the red light, as they say, which is a tally light. If it's a professional television production, I've seen some... And done some and produced some that were wired up with duct tape and fucking fishing line. But you'll have a tally light and you'll know what camera's on. So, you know, and sometimes I don't want to react to the floor camera that's on me because of something that's going on in the ring should have my attention. But I should be registering some kind of emotion about it. So 
I know the camera next to me is on, but I'm not going to look at it. I'm looking at what I'm supposed to be paying attention to, and I'm letting them know how I feel about it. But that's just elementary. We talked to what, what, where, how did we get here? Well, you were saying that you wanted to focus on fashion this week, and I thought that was a great idea. Speaking of focusing on fashion, let me tell you something else we're focusing on service, speedy service. I've been watching the the Food That Built America series on History Channel, and they've done McDonald's, and they've done Arby's, and they've done ice cream and cookies and all the fast food. But I love the McDonald's brothers, before Ray Kroc came along, invented the McDonald's speedy service system. It's like a assembly line for burgers and things. that We still use it today in the fast food industry. And the Featherbottom family... Hotchkiss, Fanny, and Felcher have adopted their own system now when it comes to the handling and, and fulfillment and shipping of Cornette's collectibles. If you're a customer at jimcornette.com, many of you already know how great a job that they're doing because you've already got your stuff. But somebody just tweeted me the other day and put a picture of the box and the label, just the way that everything was carefully done and said that, boy, they're really doing a great job, and that's when they have come up with, and it's a new system that they're implementing now. They're already getting the orders out quickly. Of course, the bottleneck is me signing the action figures, but I've just handed off just this morning, before we went on the air, another 125 or so boxes of figures. They're going to be headed out very shortly, and by, oh golly, the end of the next week, depending on when you hear this, all the people who have ordered the bloody variant by itself will probably, you'll either have it or it'll be in the mail. Most of the commentator play sets are out. We're working over the next two weeks on the folks who ordered one of each to get those out. Now that we got the bigger boxes, we're, we're getting this thing pumped out. But the feather bottoms have come up with this system because they handle everything so carefully. And the customers, Brian, they they appreciate this and they admire it. So we've come up with the Featherbottoms Ultra Careful Handling System, F-U-C-H. So from now on, if you spend some money at jimcornet.com, you can be assured that we are going to fuck your order. The Featherbottoms Ultra Careful Handling System. And it's going to be applied to everything now that uh, that is ordered at, at jimcornet.com, Brian. They're, they're just, they're on the ball. Why wouldn't it be Fuke? Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. That's exactly how you spelled it. F-U-C-H. Such. Or. Fuke. You can't see. You got you got Dutch and Crutch because you got a T in there. I don't have Dutch and Crutch. You got Dutch and if, Crutch. If you got, you, you know, you would, you know, that would be Fudge, Dutch and Crutch. You got the T in there. So F-U-C-H would be fuck, if, especially because the feather bottoms are German. What's F-U-C-K? Well, that would be fucked too, but that's a different meaning. So we don't want any confusion or mistakes. Futch your order wouldn't make sense. Fuke. Fuke your order wouldn't make sense. Well, it's not about making sense. It's about being proper, being correct. Featherbottoms, ultra careful handling. <laughs> Fuck your order. That would make sense. Fuke. Who's going to say? That's not even a word. It's a name. Devo. Oh, Michael Fuchs. He used to run HBO. Well, there's an S on the end of that. Hey, you're right. You said system. 
Well, well we don't feather bottom ultra care service system. Didn't you say that? We don't abbreviate that. That's that, that's a it, it goes without saying that it's a system. It doesn't go without saying this you had to say it. I didn't know the system, the fuck system. <laughs> We're gonna put your order through the fuck system and make sure that you get fucked. Of course, the listeners know if you want to get fucked by Jim Cornette and the feather bottoms, just go to jimcornette.com. That's right. And they'll fuck you silly. And, and they'll fuck you silly. <laughs> And these these figures are flying out. These they're leaving as quickly as they can because they're getting fucked. Each and every figure is getting fucked, and they're they're sick and tired of it. All right. Um, I do have a couple of emails from the the folks, and and this is serious now. So put your put your big boy pants on, Brian. Quit being so silly. Uh, this is from Austin, and Austin. Remember, we read an email from him. Um, back last fall when his dad was, was unfortunately was on the verge of passing away, but he had changed his ringtone to the undertaker voice. Remember he's a rest in peace. <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. And Austin wrote and, and we read that and he mentions that we read his dad's story about him changing his ringtone and that meant the world to him. And of course, he's Austin has been depressed since then, but he writes back because a couple of days, I'll, I'll just read this. A couple of days ago, I had to put my dog Brady to sleep. He was my service dog for many years, but unfortunately, old age and dementia came for him. He lost his mind and I had no choice. I feel like I lost my best friend in the world and have been struggling every day since. He was an incredible dog. We flew all over the country together. He went with me to indie shows. NXT in Orlando and even WrestleMania. I don't know. I wouldn't take a dog to WrestleMania, but he says he was here for me every day. I ended up going to the VA hospital for treatment because I could not handle my emotions. And while in the hospital, I was listening to you guys just as I always do. And you were able to distract me from my thoughts. The nurses were giving me shots and I was fainting in the bed and the nurses kept reminding me to listen to you guys. And I was able to stay strong. And so, Austin, we want to thank you for that. And you said a few other things, but we've praised ourselves enough. You've praised us enough publicly as it is. But, Brian, can you believe that your and my voice would have a calming or soothing effect on any anybody, any creature, animal, vegetable, or mineral in this world? Have, has it come to this that we're comforting people? What a fucking horrible world we must live in. Oh, it makes sense to me. And uh, I guess we could say also to Austin that if you ever feel down and out, just remember Cody Rhodes stole your gimmick. He's traveling with his dog right now. Hey, come on. Pretending it's a service animal. Well, I don't. I think that the, the uh, Cody's dog uh, bailed on him, didn't he, after that first <laughs> experience with the pyro he was like fuck you daddy they brought the dog out let's never forget that moment they brought the dog out and lit off as many fireworks and pyro yeah. around it as possible scaring and, the shit out of the dog 
And dog said, fuck it, turned around and, and went back in <laughs> like the fucking groundhog at Groundhog's Day. Fuck you. Six more weeks of bad wrestling. I'm leaving. Cody's about to have a big match. Instead, he has to turn around and comfort his dog. <laughs> Run the entrance way. <laughs> I'll tell you something. You know, now, thing, I would not take Harley Quinn around a wrestling television taping for any for any numer- innumerable reasons. But uh, Brady was probably more more together than Harley and, and didn't have to sit as close to the pyro as Pharaoh. <laughs> Pharaoh got pyroed. And here's another email. I'm going to read this one exactly as it is, because this is from Jimmy in the Gulf coast of Texas. And he sent this over just uh, about 10 days ago or whatever, but um, it's, it's a tribute and I want to read it the way he wrote it. Because it's a tribute. Uh, hello, Jim, and Mahalo, Brian. You made the salutation on this one. Mahalo. Uh, he says, I'm writing with particularly sad news. I lost my best friend today on Easter morning. We were like brothers. He was the greatest jazz drummer in the world and the funniest friends you could have. In 2019, he did his duty and introduced me to the podcast, and I've been a subscriber to the drive through and experience ever since. He was the biggest fan of Mid-South Wrestling, Memphis, Ronnie Garvin, Butch Reed, Ricky Morton, Killer Carl Cox, and so many more. He would hate that I'm mentioning this, but by his own admission, he ran and booked an outlaw mud show at East Texas during the early 2000s called MSPW. However, I have the tapes, and it's far from Jelly Nutella mud show debacles that we've seen lately. He booked the likes of Rodney Mack, New Jack, Dan Severn, Rey Mysterio Sr., Conan, Necro Butcher and Jazz with a million stories to accompany each name. This loss is killing me inside. He wasn't only a friend, but a bandmate, a business associate, a confidant, my wrestling guru, a handyman, and jack of all trades, always willing to help someone else out. I've never heard a single person speak a bad word about him. For the last three years, you and Brian have brought him countless hours of joy as he worked for his bedridden grandmother as her sole caretaker. He would have horrible days turned around on a dime when hearing about Jim bending over a puppy while Brian held its head. I don't know that we've ever mentioned this, a puppy. No, it's never been a puppy, and, and this thought should not be in his head or in this letter. It's, it's a, always a full-grown adult dog, and we check IDs. No, no. He continues on. Even after his grandmother's passing, he would find solace in his day listening to the podcast after planting 500 rows of tomatoes, building a fence around a 12-acre property, or running off crackheads emerging from the woods. It would mean the world if you could mention him on your program. Hopefully, he's found himself somewhere where he'll be able to hear it. He leaves behind a sweet baby girl doggo, a young daughter, his sweet mother, his wonderful father, a budding barbecue business and the hottest brass band this side of the Mason-Dixon. His name is Jason Carragher, and he will be dearly missed. And, Jimmy, I wanted to read that for you from the Gulf Coast of Texas, because he sounds like a great fucking guy. Especially the part about... Jazz drumming. I was going to say taking care of his grandmother, but you immediately go to your... The selfish interests. If you can find a good jazz drummer, they could do anything. They're the best guy to have in a band. Well, but can can they? If you can find a jazz drummer, can they do? Can they rewire your house? Are they electricians? Are they plumbers? 
Are they specialists in any type of profession? They can do anything. They'll approach any song you want them to play on from a better perspective. Well, I shouldn't say better. From a different perspective than a regular rock drummer or punk drummer or whatever it may be. A jazz drummer is the best one. If you want your car tuned up, though, you're still on your own. Yes. Or, you know, call a service station. Well, then they can't do anything. A triple A. Join triple A. I don't know how much it is. You join it for a year. They come out. Well, if you've got somebody, a friend of yours that can do anything, then you shouldn't have to be calling these strangers to come help you. I'm trying to pay tribute to this fallen cult member, and you're No, he, they've said he could him. do anything. You're just saying now, if you just find any old jazz drummer, <laughs> every single jazz I'm drummer saying. has every talent That's in the world. That's what I'm saying. Well, it sounded like it to me. I got another email. Would you like to hear that one? I'd like to hear this jazz, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is all that jazz. This is from Mark Cole. He's contributed some questions before from Odessa Steps Magazine. At Jim and Brian, see, apparently the, the punitive action that the writers have been taking on you lately to not even acknowledge you in the salutation of these uh, self-same aforesaid and mentioned letters has the pithiness with which you reacted to it has suitably chastened some of these people. There was a lot of words you don't hear on most podcasts. It's all strung together, right? Jim and Brian, while I normally loathe fantasy booking, young Cody introducing this bit of history does make you want to play the historical what-if game. If Dusty Rhodes had beaten superstar Billy Graham in the garden to become Vince Sr.'s world champion, just how many ways does that change wrestling history? No Backland as champion, or at least no six-year reign? What happens to Eddie Graham's Florida with no Dusty? Or, given Eddie's relationship with Vince, does Dusty still work Florida on a sporadic basis? And what would that do to Eddie's relationship with the NWA? Presuming he doesn't hold the belt forever, does Dusty still get the NWA title runs in the early 80s? There are so many permutations, is another word I love, but I'd be interested in hearing your thought exercise on the topic. So what do you think, Brian? What if they hadn't taken the title away from my dad in the garden? I think it's a great topic, a great question. And I'm going to throw this out there at the beginning because I saw this not too long ago and I have to ask him about it. He was just out here. Brian Solomon tweeted not too long ago. I believe what he tweeted was he heard it from the horse's mouth. And I was thinking the horse may have been Vince McMahon because he used to work for WWE Magazine back in the day in Titan Tower. That if it wasn't Hogan, Vince would have gone with Dusty. And I thought that was so intriguing to know that that's one of those names that everyone always figured. Yeah. But we never actually heard, yeah, Vince would have done that. It would have been Dusty at that time. So we go back now to 77 and Dusty gets over super big in the garden and on their TV, and Vince is at ringside watching that whole time. And we know that he says now he didn't want the title off Billy Graham, and we could see now the reasons why he would think that, although at the time it it made more sense than it does now. But imagine if he was pushing Dusty Rhodes to his dad then. I know you want to go with Backlund, because Backlund was, even though he had no ethnicity really he was like johnny carson (laughs) you know know, it was like we had the uh latino we had the italian and now we have what you know what are you 
uh, instead of Backlund, if they went with Dusty, that would have been the time for the change because he knew he was going to bring Backlund in and have him win the belt by the time Billy Graham got the belt. Yes. So the plan would have had to have changed in those months. Well, and see, this may be an early example of another person besides Tony Khan deciding to go through with a previously decided upon plan despite seeing something better kind of dangling in front of him. But there there were other issues then that Dusty was a big deal for Eddie Graham in Florida and also you know, I mean, obviously, Dusty, if offered, would have taken the WWF champion or WWWF championship. But there were other considerations at that point. But I think now, does everybody know the story, or is this an old story now that some of the new folks haven't been apprised of? The decision on Bob Backlund, like you said, was made. By the time that superstar Billy Graham won the world title from Bruno, what, 14, 15 months earlier? Yeah, 76. Because, and I've got, I mean, and again, I forget how much of this story is widely known and how much it's just because I've talked to people. I've talked to Kevin Sullivan about the Florida situation and, and uh, involvement in this. And it was well known in some cases back at that time in the business, but and then there was the WWF rumors. But basically, Vince Sr., after Pedro, because Pedro had drawn well in the garden, but didn't draw quite as well as Bruno had in a lot of the outlying towns, Boston, Philly, whatever, but also there was the problem with violence with Pedro, because Mulligan in Boston had gotten cut, stabbed uh, that time badly against Pedro. They couldn't possibly beat Pedro Morales just blatantly flat out or especially fuck him in the garden. It would cause a riot. So that whole thing, they had agreed, or he, Vince Sr. had gotten Bruno to agree to come back and take the belt in at the end of 73. And they did this transitional switch from Pedro through Stan Stajak for 10 days and into Bruno. And then, again, Bruno had gotten the one of the most lucrative deals ever given any wrestler in the business to actual, actual percentages of the biggest towns in the business to come back and do that. And he drew again, set record houses. Bigger. He was bigger in that second so, run. Yeah, really, bigger because they had, they had bigger buildings and better TV. And better TV. That was a big yeah. part of it. So, but then by the time that, again, he said, I, you know, after Hanson had broke his neck and, you know, the schedule is grinding on him, he says, I've got to be out. That's when Vince Sr. decided for the first time in, the, in modern wrestling in New York, and maybe really ever, to have a non-ethnic hero, because who was the... Uh, I mean, Londos was Greek in the 30s. Rocca was Argentinian slash Italian in the 50s. Pedro, Puerto Rican, Hispanic. Bruno, Italian. So there was never really an all-American boy on top in New York. And, uh, and we've talked about the problems with the starting in the 1930s with all the English English language newspapers in New York doing the exposés, and then you go back and look 
after the dark period in the 40s when wrestling came back in the 50s, it was brutal press coverage. Still, because they still had a hard-on for wrestling in, in the Big Apple, the newspaper are, uh, uh, reporters did, and newspapers. So the the crowds that came, besides the, you know, hardcore wrestling fan, it was, you know, of American descent, but the crowds came to see Rocca and Perez and Bruno, their, their heroes, and they weren't getting in their language, newspapers and radio stations in New York called suckers and idiots for believing this fake phony bullshit. But finally, he wants an all-American boy in 1976 when Bruno says, I gotta, I gotta get rid of this thing. And at that point, he called a number of promoters, and one of them that he called was Eddie Graham because Eddie Graham had had so much success with Jack Briscoe just a few years previously, former NCAA heavyweight champion, as all-American boy as you can get, was NWA champion for three-plus years, drew some of the biggest gates they ever had, and Eddie Graham had been his mentor and the guy that broke him in and, and raised him. So, And Vince Sr. had a good relationship with Eddie Graham to the point where he even allowed his TV to air in New York. Exactly, because the Graham brothers, and specifically Eddie, while Dr. Jerry had been Vince Jr.'s favorite wrestler, he was a nightmare for the promoters to deal with. But Eddie Graham, his brother, Vince Sr.'s other Golden Graham, ends up going south to Florida, buying into the promotion, becoming one of the most respected bookers and Finnish men in the business, and a mover and shaker in the NWA. And remember in the 70s, Vince Sr. had rejoined the NWA. He was a member. And he had a place in Florida. And he had a place in Florida. And that's where, and Willie Gilsenberg did too. And, you know, there was a pipeline between the New York and Florida offices, even though they were technically separate promotional umbrellas. So that's when Bob Backlund was pitched. And I th actually, I think Eddie Graham may have pitched Steve Kern first or tried to. That's what I've heard. I always heard it was yeah. one or the other. Pick one. Well, I think he, he may have tried to pitch him because Kern was in the, you know, figured in in Florida at the time in the family and one of the protégés. But I, I don't think that Vince Sr. would have seen him as future WWF champion material. But... Remember what Backlund was a another NCAA wrestling champion, but Division II, but still he was a, a not only a shooter, but his athletic credentials were incredible. And the the whole workout thing with Bob and the running the steps and the free squats and the whole nine yards that he continues to do, I guess, to this day, that's why he looks so great at his age. Nobody was ever in better cardio condition. And when Orndorff was breaking in in Florida at that same time, one of the tapes they sent to Tennessee when when Paul Orndorff came in as a rookie, and they they Jerry Jarrett did the favor for Eddie Graham of giving him some experience on top. They showed Orndorff and Bob Backlund training calisthenics in the gym and doing the shit where they're doing they're doing neck bridges with their legs interlocked and then doing sit ups in that position and just this crazy shit. And so Backlund, he's a shooter, he's a young guy, he's an all-American boy, he's got the athletic credentials, all we got to do is teach him how to work, right? 
And that's why in 1976 and 77, he went to St. Louis. He was featured there. He was featured some on Georgia TV. And he went to a variety of different places to get experience because Vince had made the decision that on, that's why he told Billy Graham and this sent Billy Graham into turmoil and he got hooked on shit and fucking depression and out of the business because he was the hottest heel in the business and the WWF champion and selling out Madison Square Garden and Philadelphia and everywhere else. But he still had to drop the title on the same date that Vince Sr. had told him he was going to drop it when he won it a year and two months previously to Bob Backlund because that was the decision that was made. And I'll say one more thing and then chime in. I heard from well, George the Animal Steel told me, but he told me in front of Jack Lanza, and both those guys were around, and both those guys would have known, and Jack would have rolled his eyes if it wasn't the case, that Vince Sr. and Bruno and probably Gorilla, whoever the inner circle was, was at the, the steakhouse for dinner after a garden show one night, their tradition, and... Bruno made the comment to Vince Sr. that there was no way that he was going to get Bob Backlund over in that spot. And Vince Sr. was like, oh, you don't think so. And it was a grudge push at that point to get Backlund over. And that's why even when he won the title, they always had Andre underneath, or they always had Dusty in a special appearance underneath, or they always had Moscaris, or they loaded up the cards with other shit, brought Bruno back for special occasions to bolster Backlund's run because he Although he, he doesn't get the credit he, he doesn't get the credit he deserves for being a big draw. He, he really he, he was a, he was a draw because I mean even the position he was in and he was a draw even though the cards were loaded but that was the first backlash of not just smart fans, but just old time wrestling fans yeah. that because Backlund's took five years. Backlund's work just didn't get good. And and Bob, because he was such a nice guy and the howdy doody farm hand look, he got heat. They wanted the flair. They wanted the dusty. They wanted the personality. When Vince Sr. went to an All-American boy, he went to the... And I love Bob Backlund. And as a heel, Mr. Backlund, he he got it. And that shit was great. He's a psychopath. But the babyface champion Bob Backlund was as bland as fucking non-sugared oatmeal. And people started turning on it. Go ahead. Yes, however... And he gets a lot of the blame for this. Backlund was super over. And Backlund was a reason people were going to the Garden... I'm not going to say as much as Bruno, and Bruno wasn't on all those shows, but I know people who were going to those shows who were casual fans that were like friends with my dad, and it was always, had to go see Bob Backlund. It was also, I had to see Dusty Rhodes, but it was, I had to see Bob Backlund. Yeah. And there are other people like that, where things turned on Backlund. It wasn't, they wanted Flair or Dusty. No, they wanted Jimmy Snuka. And what happened was with well, and okay, and, and hold on, and I say they want they wanted a personality, they wanted a they wanted somebody that was more over the top instead of goody goody. I guess is what I was trying to say. He was still having great matches. I mean, look at his matches in eighty one, eighty two. He was having great matches. Him and 
Adonis, him and Morocco, him and Bob Orton Jr., him and Buddy yeah, but, Rose. But, I mean, okay, but but look, Adonis, again, Morocco, Buddy Rose, and who else did you mention? But there weren't fans saying, "Oh, that's all them." You know, that wasn't the mindset then. What happened was that was part of the art. But go ahead. They got to see Snuka. Yeah. Kung Fu Billy Graham returns and destroys the heavyweight title, leading to Bob Backlund crying on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets a crew cut, taking away whatever personality he actually had, and starts wearing a singlet. That's right. Then, then actually, yes, the crew cut made him look like a person doing community service on the highway, and then the singlet made him look like he's 12 years old. Whatever he had, if you go watch Bob, go watch Backlund versus Snooker at the Garden, the cage match, and then watch Backlund a year later. It's a different feeling all around, and the fans reacted differently. And by that point, you saw this guy fucking crying on TV. His promos have been monotone for years. Snooker's cooler. People are coming off the top rope. This is so awesome. That's where he lost it. And then Vince, the story always was that Vince wanted him to turn heel. Dye your hair and I'll turn you heel. Yeah. And Backlund refused because he didn't want his children to see him as a heel. Wasn't that the story? Or his daughter to yeah. see him as a heel? Well, yeah. And just any of the kids to see him as a Because he took it that seriously. And, and you know, because Bob was a nice guy. He is a nice guy. And he took it that seriously. And at the time, he did not want to be a heel. But that's why I said it took him a while. At that initial run, he never got, he got the business later on, 10 years later, when he came back as a heel and still had found a way to be entertaining and not run the children off. But he legitimately, I've seen him do it. If a kid asked him for an autograph, they had to recite the, the United States presidents in order. If they did that, he would sign their autograph. And, but he, you know, what a character. As, as Mama Cornette used to say in the best use of the term character. Go watch Backlund when he won the belt. Go watch like the first year of his title reign. Not that it was only that, but specifically that. No suntan or anything, but he's in better shape than almost any wrestler in history. He's in shape like yeah. those fucking pictures you see of George Hackenschmidt at the beginning of the century. <laughs> All pure muscle. He's in the best shape there. He's almost like Brock Lesnar, but natural. He's gigantic. Yeah. And you wouldn't even realize it because it doesn't stand out so much, but he's in amazing shape. But so back to our question. So if uh, if Dusty had beaten Billy Graham in the Garden in 1977, well, then obviously there wouldn't have been heat with Eddie Graham because Eddie Graham was probably the NWA promoter that Vince McMahon Sr. would get in contact with more than anybody else in terms of asking for advice or just uh, whatever the case because there was already that relationship. And... I can see Vince Sr. sitting there going, oh, my God, this guy's to be the champion. But Vince or Vince Jr. sitting there saying that and Vince Sr. saying, well, I've got my plan. I want an all-American boy. We're going to try that for the first time. And, you know, in Dusty's gimmicky, we've got Billy Graham's a gimmick, Dusty's gimmicky. I can see the generations thinking that. And that would have really been the only other move from going from the ethnic champions to Backland, which was free of that, would have been going from the ethnic champions to a gimmick. And at the same time, everybody in the NWA, Flair was on their radar, but Dusty was on their radar better. Dusty would end up, you know, he, Flair was still in the Carolinas in 77 and starting to branch out to St. Louis. People knew that they had something there, but Dusty was already 
main event in the garden, baby. He was already leaving Florida. He was already on TBS. So Dusty had just a year or two edge there in terms of, do you know this guy's going to be the next big star? So they were already planning to give it to Dusty at some point. Well, the other, and, okay. go ahead. Well, I was going to say the other interesting thing is just evaluating what it really would have meant. If Dusty becomes the WWF champion, Vince Sr. is going to insist on controlling his bookings. Yeah. Would he still want to book Dusty out to various places? Because even then, Dusty was going all over the place. Now, Vince Sr. was the person who booked Dusty to New Japan, right? So, I mean, that relationship would end up building anyway. And Dusty still hadn't booked. So he doesn't have that well, really in his blood yet. Well, but no, it was worse because he hadn't done it yet. Well, <laughs> so, See, that's, so. that's the thing is, you know that Dusty Rhodes probably would never have been the booker for the WWF. A WWF back in those days, they didn't, again, that was another way that they operated differently than the other territories. They kept everything in-house. And I obviously I know how it's been since Vince Jr. took over. I wasn't there with Vince Sr., but it was still the group of Skoland and Gorilla Monsoon and his, Vince Sr.'s inner circle. They didn't hire outside wrestlers to come in and be the booker for a period of time like most of the other territories did. So Dusty would not have got that opportunity, but in Florida, learning from Eddie Graham, well, you don't think that that even in 1977, Dusty Rhodes, after having been the top guy and the biggest draw in Florida for four years at that point, is thinking he's going to book that thing one of these days, and he's learning from Eddie Graham being his right-hand man, one of the movers and shakers in the NWA. He knew he was in line for the NWA title, and if he stayed there and stayed close, he'd get more chances to do that. And Dusty, if I wanted to, had visions of or thoughts of someday I could be the booker here in the Carolinas for Jim Crockett when I was working for Dusty, then you know that he had thoughts that he was already going to be the booker for Eddie Graham when he was the top guy in Florida, even before he did it. So that's the big thing, I think, is that he got to, he got to book in Florida and then that opened the door for Crockett, and that was where Dusty was more comfortable being the creative force behind Vince's competition than being Vince's top star. And Dusty made more money as NWA world champion and or Crockett's booker than he probably, in 1980, three, four, five, six, than he would have made even being Vince's champion in 77, 8, 9, because he wouldn't have got Bruno's deal and the business had gotten bigger. Would Dusty, so would Dusty have enjoyed living in the Northeast yeah. at that time for three years, four years? Because yeah. that was the other thing. I would assume, no matter who it was, if it was Backland, we saw what happened, other than the Anoki thing, or a gimmick, whoever they were putting a belt on, they wanted the belt to stay on that person for a while. Yeah, and and Bob lived up at, in Connecticut and still does, I guess. And he just was happy there. And there were some people that, that moved there, worked for the WWF, and were so happy they stayed there. Tony Gurria bought him a place up in Hamden, Connecticut. And the, other times, 
you couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there. That's what Jerry Jarrett, you know, was like, fuck, I'm drinking two bottles of wine a night sitting in this condo. They've got me in Stamford. I need to get the fuck out of here and back home. So it, they either loved it or hated it, one or the other. But so, yes, Dusty would have still got runs with the NWA title. It probably wouldn't have hurt Florida because, let's face it, Florida under Eddie Graham, with Dusty or without Dusty, was always going to be a premier territory because there was so much other talent, so much history, so much television blanketing the state, and Eddie Graham knew what he was doing. There was never periods of time where people were starving in Florida. There would have been no problem with the relationship with the NWA because at that time everybody was involved. That's why the WWWF champion was billed as WWWF champion instead of world champion because they had rejoined the NWA just as a show of fellowship, even though they were a separate promotion. So I think, to be honest with you, it would have been a couple of years of fucking great promos and can you imagine Dusty's whole shtick when he was still so young and in great shape and wearing the psychedelic fur robes in New York City? And him and Graham would have probably done sellout after sellout, maybe switching the thing back and forth if they'd have gone that far. Well, a few things. One, you know, in Andy Warhol's diaries, there is a mention of hanging out one night with Dusty Rhodes and an I don't know if he really mixed well with Andy Warhol and his crew, <laughs> but I imagine he may have been in his fur coat. I got to go back and check it. It's in the book. But the other thing is with Billy Graham, you know, to go to that argument, the idea that the fans were ready to turn him, in a lot of cases, they were already cheering him. All they had to do was make him a babyface. You would have been set up. Would those fans have liked babyface Billy Graham matches? He got away with a lot in terms of what he could do in the ring because he was a heel. And the other thing is, Who's to say he wouldn't have still had any of the issues in terms of chemical dependence or physical issues that he would end up having in the next few years anyway? Well, I mean, you know, he would have, Graham deteriorated physically after that run significantly over the next few years. And like, you're right, especially because of the charisma, he could get by with a few things, but the work in the ring was never his thing. Maybe in the early 70s in the, in the AWA, I would like to have seen more of that stuff. But by the time he lost the WWF, because I mean, even Jerry Lawler did not have a great match with superstar Billy Graham because Graham was somebody that had such a name that you couldn't just tell him what to do. He had to work it out. And, and you know, so Lawler didn't have full control of the match. And the stuff Graham was doing by that point, it just did a lot of it. You couldn't salvage, but I think they would have liked him because again, probably New York still at that time, that territory, that part of the country, what happened in the ring was less important than anywhere else. And Graham was so over. I think they could have switched him baby face and got a tremendous run out of him after he lost the belt they still could have switched him babyface and had a big run if he'd have, if they'd have wanted to, if he'd have wanted to, of you know, whatever the fuck happened. But it was just boom and it's over. Yeah, that would have been and, perfect. Then you would have had babyface Billy Graham on the show without the belt and you could still have Macklin with the belt. Or if they'd have done it with Dusty. And then can you imagine a special tag team of Dusty Rhodes and Billy Graham, baby? against whatever heel team that would have been against Tom Shaft and whoever else is offended. They stole his promo. 
Oh, come on now. <laughs> Troy Graham will have to be in there too because he, he idolized Tom Shaft. And by the way, no relation, Troy Graham, no relation to the other Grahams. But isn't that funny also? Dr. Jerry and Eddie Graham were the biggest heel team in the 50s version of New York wrestling. Eddie came back, or Jerry came back with Luke, and they were a top team, but then they couldn't tolerate Jerry anymore. And then Billy Graham ends up as one of the dominant heavyweight champions, and he's allegedly from the same family. And Vince and Eddie Graham continued a relationship, uh, Vince Sr. So the Grahams were some of the most important people in New York wrestling history, and nobody even really puts that together. You know what? Because we've been talking about this a while, and we still have a lot of things to talk about, and this is a great topic. This has been a lot of fun. Next week's show, let's talk about what if Dusty had been the pick? Instead of Hogan, what if Hogan had said no? Or what if Vince Jr. had just said, you know what? I know Dusty better. I have a better relationship. He gets it. I'm going to go with him. How does everything change if Dusty is the one that Vince Jr. goes with to beat the Iron Sheik? Wow. If it is the Iron Sheik, do you use the Iron Sheik at that point? Well, you couldn't have Dusty beat Bob Backlund. No, it would have to be a transition champion. But you also had Ivan Koloff and the Mass Superstar there. And that's probably, he said, well, I don't want to fucking beat the superstar or beat Ivan that quick and et cetera, but she can handle it because better, the short, shorter his match is, the better anyway. But that's, uh, again, these what ifs, they're fascinating because you never know what's going to happen, Brian. You never know what, you could have to change your career in the twinkling of an eye, just reroute and re-rack your whole life plan and what what if bob backland had not become the champion with his academic background could he have gotten a job in the real world or would if he have had to go and study something to have something to fall back on what if some of these other people hadn't be picked to, to do these things would they have to go study something to fall or would they have already done it so they already had their fallback plan. These are things we've all got to think about, aren't they, Brian? I guess so. And I would think if Bob Backlund was learning the skill, he may be doing the Harvard step test in the midst of it. Well, yes. And since he would do that for hours at a time, he could either read his book or now with all the modern technology, he could look at his phone and he could take these courses. And, you know, folks... <laughs> I'm telling you, you got love, to have. I love the idea he's using modern technology, but you're not. Well, <laughs> I don't need to learn nothing new. I was doing the shit that I used to do profitably. But I'll tell you, folks, if if you're broker than a broke dick dog, if you don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of, if you're so broke you can't pay attention, and if you're having currently having your sweat repossessed because you don't have no money, well, you need a new career. And we've talked about these people. The best way to change your career in today's fast-changing world, one of the best ways to succeed in it, learn how to code. Not only read codes and write codes, but encode things. We've talked about the the potential for survival when the lizard people take over the world oh, and on. the bots are doing their bidding. you got to know how to program these bots. Because I'll tell you what, there's no bot about it. These bots are where it's at. 
you're all you're hearing about now is the bots. So if you can't get in the window replacement business and make a fortune, well, you got to go to Code Academy. And over 50 million people already know that. They know they have found out that Code Academy is the best way to learn to code. That's why I say we're going to have to be eliminating some of these people because they're, there's too many people now that are smartened up to this code. But they need more people all the time to learn how to write code that can fool the people that already know how to read secret code. That's why that Code Academy has an endless supply of people to choose from to train in these coding skills. And then they go out there and they do it for a while and then they outlive their usefulness and something happens to them. We got more people <laughs> writing new codes that nobody knows how to read. I give up. I... Folks, <laughs> if you think finding the right career or job can impact your life or possibly save your life, or if you want to know how learning technical skills could be the answer for people quitting as part of the great resignation, I'll tell you what, I've seen people walking down the street here lately. I look out the window. I see some of the people in the human race, and they all look resigned. They all look like they're just resigned to whatever fate has brought them. But no, you can change your future and possibly extend it. Get on the right side of the upcoming takeover. Learn at your own pace. And get qualified for in-demand jobs when the world is being rebuilt. I, if you, if There's two things that's going to happen with these modern technology and the artificial intelligence. The world is going to need to be rebuilt and repopulated. So if you don't think that you're up for the repopulating, then you got to be up for the rebuilding. That's where the coding and the basic websites and artificial intelligence and all that stuff, that's where it comes in is the rebuilding. Any any dipshit with a dick can repopulate. But the rebuilding is where the profitableness is going to come in. I don't this think has nothing to do with well, with Code Academy. Well, I, yeah, it does, because I don't think you're going to get a lot of people that are going to get a lot of money for helping repopulate the world. That's usually something that people are going to do for free. But if you want to rebuild it, because as we know, any jackass can kick the world down, but it takes a carpenter to build one. If you want to rebuild the world, Code Academy can point you in the right direction where you learned from anything from building basic websites to the artificial intelligence. We know what that's code for the bots and everything else you could want. You'll be writing real working code in minutes. Nobody will be able to read it, but you'll be fucking writing it and learning coding languages like the Python, the Hittimulsis, the SQL, the JavaScript, and so much more. And of course there's that, personality quiz that you can take there at codecademy.com and you'll get tailored career advice and course recommendations you'll also get some some of the people that read these personality quizzes like to kibitz on things you could do to change yourself to maybe get laid more often or have more friends they'll give you some recommendations on that like shut up or shave your balls shit like that but they will be positive feedback no, they will focus on the coding that you'll be learning and you should all focus on that part of everything that Jim is saying. You will learn a new skill. Yes. A skill called coding. You'll be able to yes. code and build websites. And yes. then there's also all this other fun stuff Jim's talking about, but let's focus on what you really will be learning. And well, yes, you'll capable. learn a lot of things about yourself. They'll tell you what's wrong with you in a heartbeat. Folks, build your portfolio and get a certificate of completion to make yourself more marketable to future employers. Should people like that exist in the future dystopian society? 
You can land your dream job in web development, programming, computer science, data science, and tons more, including living off the land and turning pond water into drinkable sustenance potable to the average human. Folks, join the over 50 million people learning to code with Codecademy and see where coding can take you, and you can get 15% off your Codecademy Pro membership when you go to Codecademy.com and use the promo code EXPERIENCE. That's promo code EXPERIENCE at Codecademy.com. 15% off Codecademy Pro. That is C-O-D-E-C-A-D-E-M-Y.com. Promo code EXPERIENCE. How do you like my singing, Brian? Oh, like may not be the word. Well, hold on. Let me give myself a rousing hand. Wait a minute. Where's my hand? There it is. Oh, I got some big news. FFA meeting. What big news? I got some big news for you and for fans of the drive-thru. I found the old thumb piano. See? Sounds much nicer, much sweeter. Yeah. yeah, Even when I I slam it down, you don't hear it. I don't know how we've missed or how we've done without that since we've been missing it. People have been clamoring for its return. They've been clammy. I don't know about clamoring. They've been clammy for the return. Well, speaking of clambering, <laughs> uh, old Bobby Lashley was clambering back into the ring. <laughs> the, uh, apparently, are they overseas? Are they across the pond? This was a clip from an, an international event that they just had. It was on Twitter just this fine morning. I'll find Drew, out where it was from. Find out where it's from. Drew. I think it's across across the Great Sea. Drew McIntyre and Bobby Lashley are doing something, and they both hit the ropes for a spot. Drew hits the ropes first. Bobby's hitting the ropes on the other side. And when Drew McIntyre hits the ropes, the top rope breaks. And Bobby Lashley, just a second behind him, tries to hit what the where the rope used to be behind him, but the top rope had just broken and it dropped suddenly. And poor Bobby hit the middle rope with his ass and it backflipped him in a perfect backflip ass over tea kettle head over heels straight to the fucking floor outside the ring where he laid there for some period of time until apparently they said he got up and was able to continue the match but it a lot of people were laughing not that bobby might have gotten hurt but that drew drew lashley Drew McIntyre was in the match. They had just done the spot. Where was it? At WrestleMania or whenever, where he took his sword and cut the ropes and it looked kind of like, but somebody was like, well, they must've had the spot set up to where he was going to cut the ropes. No, the rope just fucking broke. They wouldn't have done that. If they'd gimmicked the rope, they wouldn't have been working a match on, on a gimmicked rope. Did you find out where by now that I've blustered through that, uh, where it was exactly. It was in Newcastle. And I uh, also want to say for the record, to the best of my knowledge, they're both baby faces. Say it again now. They're both baby faces, aren't they? McIntyre and Lashley? Well, does that matter anymore? Shit doesn't have to make sense. For some reason, they were beating each other up. Maybe the people over there haven't got the the uh, memo yet about Bobby being a baby face. Baby face Bobby, they call him. But anyway, it was a scary fuck it. That is a, I've never had it happen to me, but I've had it happen right in front of me 
and it's scary as shit just seeing the rope snap and somebody coming out. I can imagine how it feels when when you're the somebody. And but again, no, they they weren't unless they've just lost their minds. They weren't working in a gimmicked ring for Drew to cut the rope with his sword. But the, that's the problem that I've mentioned with rope ropes. And have we done this in a while? Where the are do the newer folks understand how these rings are put together? They may or they may not, and not only how they're put together, but I guess you could also address the fact that you were the person directly responsible for the change in the rings with the exception of the ropes. Well, if I wasn't so humble and lovable, I would take credit for that again. Again. I might as well. Yes, I'm the one. No. Um, uh, We get a lot of questions about the rings. Why is this ring in this clip so big? Why is this other ring so small? Why does this ring look this way? Or how could this happen to that ring? Short evolution of wrestling rings obviously when pro wrestling started and pro boxing started using a ring they were the same ring and we've talked about before in the late 1800s of you know the first heavyweight boxing matches involving john l sullivan they were still using a a ring drawn in on the ground right which is henceforth where the term ring comes from but when they finally started making this either wrestling or boxing, an organized activity, they had a raised ring with ropes on it so that people, the spectators, could see. You know, the guys are three or four feet above, so you can see them. And also, the ropes are to not only keep the guys in, but to delineate the the area of combat. And that was the the way it was for a while, there was no differentiation in the rings because wrestlers weren't really taking bumps then per se. But then, and that's why you see a lot of the old, you know, thirties footage that still exists. Um, you know, guys, if they took a bump on the fucking mat, they bounced instead of the mat. And that's why there weren't a lot of bumps. But as the slam bang Western style wrestling of Toots Mont came in, you know, they started needing some modification. But And Brian, again, the old garden ring, Madison Square Garden, at the, the old garden before the one they opened in 68 at Penn Station, but the previous location, whatever, the pictures of Bruno and all those title matches, that ring had four ropes, and there was a a little tie in between the ropes to prevent them from spreading because that was a boxing fucking ring. Even the apron, even the apron was larger than normal. And the apron, the big wide apron where you see in the old, again, boxing matches and pictures, the, the ringside photographers would lean, uh, on the, you know, that wide apron and there was the press row and et cetera. In the major Northeastern cities and in the, in major arenas, through the fifties and some places, like I said, New York in the sixties, you would still see boxing rings. And it was the big guy territories where they didn't take a lot of bumps. And it also, the everybody's asked about the size of rings. The Northeastern buildings, Madison Square Garden or the Boston Garden, they were so big, they always had at least a 20-foot ring because boxing rings are 20 feet. And you've seen the old pictures in Kobo Arena. They had a 24-foot ring. And I think it was an old boxing ring that had just been repurposed. 
Because a lot of these arenas used to store, they had so much wrestling and boxing that they used to store the rings in the arenas rather than carry, uh, crew carry them to every show. The Most of these arenas had their own rings. So sometimes it was boxing rings, sometimes a wrestling ring, sometimes an amalgam of the two. And boxing rings always had real ropes. So now we're getting to the meat of the matter. The 20-foot or 24-foot boxing rings in the big buildings, especially in the Northeast, and Vern Gagne in Chicago, Minneapolis, he used real ropes also, and they were bigger rings. Down south and in the, some of the Midwestern territories and etc., they started modifying, especially the, the smaller guy territories that took more bumps, had more action, the weekly shows that had to keep the pace up, they started modifying rings and started coming up with these suspension rings that I've talked about where instead of a, the ring flooring just being so solid you could drive a car over it and immobile and hard to bump on, there are iron cross beams that go across both ways that allow some give on the boards that make up the floor of the ring so when you hit it, with any kind of force or weight, there's an inch or two of bow in the middle, which makes a lot of difference. Those rings also, those style of rings, are easier to erect and to square up where the posts don't lean and it doesn't wobble back and forth if you're using cables instead of real ropes. The cables also... Are, are, pro provide more action. That's why when, when WCW and WWF were in the, the Attitude Era Monday Night Wars and people were switching back and forth, they got the impression a lot of times that the action in WCW was faster. That's because they were still using an 18-foot ring, which means that you had two feet less going back and forth across to cover and they used cables instead of ropes, which don't bow as far out and have a more immediate spring back effect than the, the ropes, which have more sag. So that was a visual difference that you could see, but you didn't really know what it was unless you knew what it was. I always preferred cables because not only, well, you've seen, when Al Snow first went to the WWF, he tried to do all the springboard stuff that he'd been doing for 10 years. And the first couple of weeks fell on his ass almost every time. And he's like, what the fuck? Because he'd not been doing it on ropes. If you watch now, even AJ Styles, who does that impeccable springboard forearm, he does it next to the corner of the ring instead of in the middle of the ring. That's because that's where the ropes have more stability because they're real ropes. You would see guys in WCW, you'd see guys in Ring of Honor, in AEW now, they'll do springboards off the middle of the rope, right? Or any place on it. Or they'll walk the thing like a tightrope because those are cables. So when I first approached Vince, and I guess it was 97, 96, 97, we had started the developmental program up there, and there was a guy that had a spot show ring that he got from somebody in North Carolina classic old southern spot show ring suspension ring and the guys went up to these spot shows and 
were taking bumps in it. I said, my God, I wish our rings were like that. So I talked to Vince, and of course, that's what he said. Well, I thought we had the best rings in the business, pal. So you got the cleanest. You can eat off of them. Change the canvas, every TV. Everything's spotless. Hard as a fucking rock. Harder than Chinese arithmetic. It's like hitting a frying pan. So I had them bring the spot show ring down and set it up at the uh, studio in Stamford and had the WWF engineers come in and said, well, that, that won't work. What? Why it won't last? And I had the guy that brought the ring. I said, tell him how old that ring is. He said, well, the guy I got it from said it's built in the 50s. And he had been leaving it set out in his backyard in Boston in the wintertime. The mildew smell would knock you down, but it's still set up just perfect. So I got, under a modified system, the suspension ring that they still use to this day, and that's why guys have not hurt themselves any worse taking bumps, but I couldn't win the rope and cable fight because Vince, what well, we, we've always used ropes. And then some of the top guys, I think Undertaker liked ropes better because he'd spent 20 years on the ropes. And some of the top guys were that were used to the ropes liked the ropes. So we couldn't win that one. Start calling ropes belts. He'll hate them right away. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, then he'll ban the entire term. But but this was what it was so frustrating because the guys that were going to build the new rings, right? I said, I, pro I said, go get a set of cables. And And what it is is, it's quarter inch steel cable. They've sometimes they call it airplane cable. I said, get a set of cables. Let's put them on and just see what happens. You know what he did? Yeah, I came in. I said, you get the cables. He said, yeah. He said, you can't use these. I said, I can't. he said, we can barely lift them. I said, what are you talking about? He went out and got one inch cable, like it was supposed to be the same size as the rope, and we were just going to wrap that. <laughs> you couldn't pick them up off the ground. I said, what the fuck are you? I'll I'll explain the difference here. With cables, it's a quarter-inch steel cable. And you just run it through the turnbuckles, one, two, three, that's going to go in your corners, and you put the turnbuckle pad over that. Well, and then you you when you're splicing it at the fourth corner, it's like splicing wire. And you can just clamp it, and you don't need much overlap. And it's sturdy. And then you put a garden hose and not just, I've seen rings with just the fucking garden hose you get at Walmart to water your lawn. And that'll hurt because it's too mushy when you hit them. And when you first hit cable ropes, you got to learn how to hit them right. You're going to know, don't hit them under your fucking ribs and hit them. Don't hit them like these pussies do these days. Hit them like fucking men that are trained to hit ropes. And it won't fuck you up, but you'll be black and blue for the first few weeks anyway. But nevertheless, you take a heavy-duty rubber hose and run it around the cable, and then you duct tape that with your colored duct tape. And once you got your turnbuckle pads on, then you just put the turnbuckle hooks in each turnbuckle on each ring post and tighten it up. And you should, and you've got a cable running around your posts at the bottom also, so the cable on top and the cable on the bottom squares up your ring that's with cables with ropes it's a whole different procedure they if anybody wants to go and look at a wwe 
match video anywhere. If you look at the turnbuckles, the top's probably the easiest to see on the top rope. One corner of the ring, the ropes leading from the turnbuckle pad in the corner for about two or three feet, two feet out on either side will be fat. It'll look like a double thickness wrapped in that tape. Have you seen that, Brian? Yeah, of course. Well, that they call uh, John D'Amico. Got used to do the ring. I don't know if he's still there. My God, he'd be as old, older than me. Uh, the fat corner. Because with the ropes, it's not like just splicing a little thin cable and clamping it or whatever. You've got to, uh, you've got to train how to tie these things and wrap them around, and they clamp them on both sides, and then they duct tape the actual rope. There's no hose over it. That's why you, when you see that, you're seeing rope imprints or rope the, the, the texture of rope. You see it, right? Even though it's wrapped in duct tape, it looks like a rope wrapped in duct tape because that's what it is. But that fat corner, besides the fact you have to have people experienced in tying and clamping that and all that stuff, that's indicative of overlapping that rope that's got to be tied in there tight. But the corner is not what on Lashley and McIntyre blew up. The rope snapped. Think about this. What affects rope that doesn't affect steel cable? Rope stretches. The, the fiber of water, humidity, can or just use. Remember, I said that they, they wanted us to use ropes in OVW. And we said, no, we're not going to fucking do it. Because people get hurt when you're using a ring every day as a training ring. The ring's getting, the ropes are getting hit multiple times more than on a, just a regular show. And it was Mark Henry, that's the way he broke his leg one time. He hit the ropes and the ropes broke. And he took a bump out of the ring and, and that was early in his training. So imagine this, if, if they're over there, they probably don't have, maybe they don't have people trained or maybe they're flying over the ring crew too, but also sometimes that, that rope's time just comes when guys that big are hitting it that much and it's under that much stress. And even if you constantly replace them, if you carry a rope that's just wrapped in duct tape out of a building when you're taking a ring down, and you put it in a puddle of water outside next to the ring truck. You've just compromised that rope because the duct tape alone is not going to keep that rope from absorbing water. And then you've got rot inside the duct tape. And you see where I'm going with this. And a steel cable, the corners might snap, but it's, that's rare. And the middle of that cable ain't never going to snap. Where you see... Cable ropes coming loose is at the turnbuckle where it's hooked into the ring post. And we've talked about this. Sometimes you cut corners on one of these cheap, you know, fast food rings. And the hook that goes, the turnbuckle hooks into the ring post. That's not secure. It's not one of those real curved hooks. It's just one of the fucking 90 degree things or whatever. Cheap shit. Well, then if a guy that weighs almost 300 pounds and knows how to take a turnbuckle hits that thing square with some force, it pushes that whole hook back about a half an inch and it pops out of the fucking eyelet and your whole turnbuckle, you've seen people, the whole turnbuckle falls, right? 
that's what happens there. It's not that the cable is breaking. It's that the turnbuckle hook actually came out of the eyelid on the ring post. And that's where every once in a while, somebody will get monkey flipped and they'll take the top rope with them. You've seen that spot. They get shot into the corner. Boom. They hit the buckle. The guy comes, runs up, monkey flips him. The turnbuckle goes with him, hook and all. Uh, but anyway, it just, I hate ropes. I don't think they ought to use ropes. I think there's more things that can go wrong with ropes and it slows your shit down and it's not as good a base to jump off of. And if you see a rope snap, it's usually in the WWE because they're the only ones using ropes. What do you think, Brian? Well, I think they shouldn't be using ropes. Well, then you're in agreement with me. <laughs> I always like smaller rings and cable. I was about to say cable ropes, but I guess cables. Cables. Pretending to be ropes because at home you think it's a rope. I always like matches in those rings better. I always thought they move faster. It was more action. And then you can get too small. I mean, they used to have 16-foot rings for spot shows, little fair shows. They'd go in a trailer easier, but you got no room to to motivate in those things. And, you know, then every once in a while, I'll, I'll say this and we'll move on. You've seen the, like the ring of Georgia Championship Wrestling Superstars, the summer of 83. We were in Channel 3 in Chattanooga, and the ceiling of their studio was fucking 10 feet or whatever with the lights so they actually had to use the old tv studio ring where they just cut the posts off under about six inches underneath the side rail and so the ring sat only a foot off the ground because there was no room at the at the top to to go any further and you would literally just step into the ring from the floor which was a weird goddamn you know sensation but then guys would get, you know, into their match and what they were doing and they'd forget and they'd get thrown through the ropes and take what they start to take what they thought was going to be a normal bump. And that concrete would be there about three feet quicker. And it would get your attention. Well, have we pretty much broken down the mechanics of ring construction so everybody understands what was going on? I think so. When was the first time you saw a ring break in front of you as a fan? If oh, you saw God. one as a fan. I, I, well, <laughs> this was fucking hilarious. I saw one of Nick Goulas's TV studio shows that aired here in Louisville. And I, I'm going to say it was 1973. And the Memphis TV was always with Lance and Dave and a, a you know, big time television station. It was the premier, you know, uh, studio show that Nick had, but we've talked about Nick had TV in Nashville, Chattanooga, Birmingham, Huntsville did at one point did a show for about six months, a studio show here in Louisville in early 74, I think it was late 73. We still get emails from people saying that Harry Thornton was their voice of wrestling. Yes, because he had the Chattanooga show and it aired up here. A lot of cases because Louisville also had two wrestling time slots on two different stations for a lot of the time that. Nick was running before Jarrett took over, so it would be the Memphis show and maybe Chattanooga or Birmingham with Sterling Brewer, whatever the case. But the point is, there was this one match. They're having a studio match, and I remember it was Bearcat Brown, and it may have been Big Al Green. And the whole middle of the ring caved in. It. I don't know how this one was constructed. It obviously wasn't metal cross beams all the way across. It had to be a wooden frame. It was one of the cheap ones that they had for studio shows or whatever. 
but the middle of the ring caved in in the middle of this match they're having. And so to get out of it, basically Bearcat Brown gave the headbutt to the heel, I think was Al Green, and he just fell into the hole that was in the, it was like a reverse thing of Jiffy Pop popcorn. The whole middle of the ring was bowed in, but the edges were still on the apron. So he fell in the hole and Bearcat Brown sat on him and pinned him while he was laying upside down, but still with his back to the canvas. That's how they got out of that match. I saw that on TV. One night in Lexington, Kentucky, 1978, they had just opened up Lexington, Rupp Arena, and I'm there taking pictures, and Tony Charles is working, and he hits, it was Buddy Wayne's spot show ring, and these were cables, but let's face it, the rings that Buddy had, almost all parts of them had issues at some point. He hits the top rope. And it snaps from somewhere, and he's like five feet to the right of me, and he takes a flip and lands on the concrete right at my at my side. And I had ducked when I heard the snap and I saw him coming. I ducked down beneath the apron of the ring, and the turnbuckle flew right over my head. And down it went with him. And But he was brilliant because he wasn't hurt bad. He was shook up, but he was supposed to do the job in the match. So instead, he just laid there and took the count out. The people believed it, and he didn't have to do a job. So always thinking. Priorities. Always thinking. Priorities. <laughs> anyway, would you like to talk about the WWE evil? Yeah, it was actually uh, an interesting episode this week. And when, I say this episode. week. Every time we talk about it and say this week, it's the whole season's on Peacock right now. Well, that would mean we'd have to watch the cock. The peacock, I mean. You know what I'm talking about. The multicolored bird. Right. Watch, not wash. Yes. No, we're not washing the cock. We're watching the cock. Uh, But they're on USA Network on Tuesday nights now. And it's, by the way, we didn't, there was nothing on NXT that was worth two shits to talk about this week. So instead, we went to just straight to evil. And and you got the raw review on the drive-through this week, folks. So what more do you want for your money? But the evil this week was on Hulk Hogan, a name synonymous with evil. But this was this was not how he saved pro wrestling as its first ever superhero. But this was how he saved pro wrestling again as its first ever supervillain. He invented all this stuff according to the program. Is that what you got out of it, Brian? He came up with all this shit, being mean and betraying people. He lies about everything. I didn't think this was <laughs> too over the top for him. The only thing I'll say is when one of the talking heads tried to present it like, this is what made heels cool, I would answer, well, you know, Steve Austin <laughs> was yeah. actually there too. So it wasn't just Hollywood Hogan making heels cool. Well, but- wait a minute, but heel... <laughs> Heels were cool when Ric Flair, the previous decade, was the world champion. Heels were cool when superstar Billy Graham was the heel we just talked about a little while ago on the show in New York, and he was the champion. Heels were cool in the 60s when it was Bruiser and Crusher, right? Because they pretty much got turned because they were invincible, never sold anything, and never did a job. So they became the road warriors of the 60s. So it's not. I mean, I'm not 
going to start tearing down everything that Hogan did in this equation of the Hollywood Hulk Hogan, WCW heel, NWO era. But again, for the mass audience, the mass consumption that they do these shows for, they simplify things down to the point where you would think that no one had ever, no ultra babyface had ever turned heel and betrayed the fans before. No one had ever thought of such a dastardly thing. And I know for Hogan, this was not exaggerated much. And I liked a few of the sideways shots that they did. Nash, actually, uh, we'll get to that in a second, but Nash actually telling what Hogan was really like to work with. Uh, so they got some shots in there, but they had to, obviously, to have Hogan's participation. They had to make it mostly complimentary and genuflect toward him as his you know, a position in the wrestling pantheon t- deserves, right? Right. They left off his real heel turn, which was on a tape in Bubba the Love Sponge's bedroom. <laughs> okay. um, no mention of that. The clips that they, when they started out telling the story of Hogan's, you know, superherodom and his rise, and uh, the publicity that he did get in the 80s was insane. Johnny Carson and Mike Douglas and every talk show and every sports show and especially leading up to WrestleMania. And when you think about it, this was another of Vince Jr.'s reversals of previous, you know, maybe his father's, you know, uh, uh, rulings or just previous rules of thumb in wrestling. They didn't care what publicity they got as long as it was publicity. We've talked about that if it wasn't favorable publicity in the territory days, the promoters didn't want it. They were doing business already. They didn't want the publicity of, hey, this is all fake and phony and predetermined, and you're a goofy sucker if you go there, because that's what a lot of newspapers or TV stations, that's the direction they wanted to take i've talked about seeing christine jarrett personally throw the whas news crew out of the louisville gardens because the stuff they said about her fans and her business the previous time and she'd say we got 3500 people in there we don't need your kind of publicity but vince wasn't scared about people telling people wrestling was a work he was going to do it anyway and he just wanted to book people everywhere but, you know, Hogan never did that. It wasn't like there was ever any of the wrestlers. They weren't book places to talk about wrestling not being on the up and up. He was the only one who did it in interviews. Vince. Well, no, but 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 Vince got him. He didn't care. He just wanted him out there. They could take care of themselves. They didn't have to say it. But, you know, but that's a, it just opened up where he was getting his people in any type of media situation he could just for publicity and just to get the names and the faces and the idea out. He he wouldn't, I mean, they would turn up on anything, especially in the 80s. It was, they they weren't making a secret of what was going on anymore. As far as, you know, this, uh, the, the wrestling promotion was always in all those cities and always drawing those crowds. But the papers and the TV stations didn't pay any attention to it. A lot of times when they did, they'd get kicked out because they'd be uncomplimentary. But now all of a sudden it's like, oh, Book my guys. But he was on everything. Um, And it helped that he looked like that. 
You know, that's one thing, our our debate that we had earlier. Dusty would have got over with charm and charisma, but he didn't look like that in an 8 by 10 right? So if you're the Tonight Show booker, you want this guy you've never heard of or this guy you've never heard of, but one of them looks better than the other one. Well, the other thing, too, is Hogan knew how to turn on the charm for a mainstream audience better than yeah. almost anyone in wrestling history. And he used that to very good uh, advantage. Did you see who made a guest appearance in a one, maybe 1.2 second clip when they were showing some WCW highlights from 1993? Oh, I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about because I said, oh, there he is. Was it Jim Cornette and Heavenly Bodies? Yes, apropos <laughs> of absolutely nothing, when they're just saying the lay of the land of WCW in 93, there was a one and a half second clip of the angle we did when Watts had us come in for Super Bowl and the Bodies and the Midnight Express had the TV match. Give them credit. It's stupid as it is. They're talking about right when Bischoff got control and they went to right when he was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Why else would they pull up that clip of all the clips? I, I, it, was, it, it happened in 1993. I don't, you know, that's the only connection that I can see that that, but anyway. So Bischoff's story is he pitched Hogan to turn heel, but Hogan hated the idea. And that's what we've always heard also. But basically they didn't come out and say this. But when Hall and Nash started getting over as the invaders, the outsiders, then all of a sudden Hogan liked it better. And he admitted that he knew he had to reinvent himself because it'd been the same thing for, at that point, what, 13 years. Uh, but then as soon as he decides in this well context, this program, go ahead. Let me stop you there. It wasn't the same thing. And I think this is something people miss. Hulk Hogan was like one thing up until 86, 87. And then he became like a cartoon version of that Hulk Hogan. True. It went more and more over the top. Yeah, Hogan in the AWA into the early years of Hulkamania and the WWF as people were meeting him all around the country and he was a big star. That was one thing. And then he just became too... For a lot of kids like me, there was a reason we turned against him. There's a reason we liked the Ultimate Warrior more. Hogan just started getting more and more cartoony. Hokey, hokey, hokey Hogan, hokey, <laughs> hokey Hogan. That's well, that's that's what it was. And then it, it, the TBS tried to change WCW to chase Vince, and the wrestling fans got no alternative to cartoon, you know, ice cream bar land, and they started turning against everything in the early nineties. But anyway, so if, if Hogan admits he had to reinvent himself, but then from that point forward, the, the tone of the special is that he had to save pro wrestling by switching heel, uh, you know, uh, and he saved it again. And then everybody, as I, I wrote, everybody verbally fellates Hogan like he invented being a heel wrestler. <laughs> Dr. Phil is back. Uh, why is Dr. Phil on this program? For a paycheck? I mean, let's do a fucking biography of Dr. Of, of Dr. Phil, of Hulk Hogan. The first person we got to get is Dr. Phil. I don't, and he was on, who else was he on? Uh, no, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Dr. Oprah Winfrey? Phil. I don't know. <laughs> no, he was on another one of these evil specials. Anyway, they must have got comments on multiple people. Anyway, the Slipknot guy. <laughs> a guy from Slipknot. 
um, actually said the quote, there was a virus in wrestling. It's like the heels were cool, which was exactly where they went wrong. And wouldn't it, it was, we're talking about the NWO's impact on WCW, where they made all of the WCW guys look like clueless putzes and made the NWO heels look cool to where that they lost their own fucking company. And all the WCW fans were like, what the fuck? Yeah, anyway. Bruce Pritchard is so careful not to say anything inflammatory to anyone living or dead. It's amazing. He can... He can say a, a make a flat statement, and it will take neither person's side in an issue where there's only two sides. Beyond not being able to listen to him because he says the most boring stuff in the slowest, most monotone manner. Beyond that, I can't stop looking at his neck. It's like it's oh now like come on five times the size and hey. It's just a you know over thirty five percent of the men in America will suffer at some point or another from male expanding neck. So don't be yeah. so frivolous. And over 40% will suffer from watching TV that Bruce Pritchard had a part of. No, not that many people will watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good so point. <laughs> in 1996, they say on this special, <laughs> this was a quote, WCW was dominating the WWF in the ratings. Thanks to Hulk Hogan. I bet you at that point, Hall and Nash and a few other people down there were uh, probably pissed. Yeah, um, and they came as close as possible as just saying he noticed that Nash and Hall were getting over big yes. time. And he didn't want it to be Sting. He said, make it me. It has to be yeah. me. It can't be Sting. It must be me. And honestly, Sting couldn't have done it anyway. That, I asked Sting when Sting was in the main event mafia in TNA. And he was a babyface in the top heel group because of some fantasy that Shitstain had dreamed of after dinner at Taco fucking Tico. And I asked him, I said, Sting, you're you're a heel. Well, ex talk to Vince. He'll explain it to you why I'm a babyface, but I'm in the heel group. I said, I have, and he tried, and it didn't work. So now you're beating the babyfaces without cheating. And you're in the heel groups. Haven't you ever wanted to be a heel just to have fun like that? No. That was his answer. No. Never wanted to be a heel. So he would have been able to do it anyway. And honestly, I think Sting is another person who either because of the religion or just the presentation has come to think that he would be betraying the, the little children. The little, the little children if he became a heel. But anyway. That was Cody's excuse too, wasn't it? I get, you know, somebody ought to ask the children how they feel about these <laughs> children. Probably, yeah, fuck him. I don't like him anyway. Dirty meal. So Hogan then demanded creative control. And Booker T's comment is, well, and that opened up a whole can of worms. Then Hogan's quote was, their egos all got out of control when I got creative control. That's the funniest line of the whole <laughs> and thing. Then, and then Kevin Nash says, so the golden one would walk in at 5.15 on an 8 o'clock show and say, well, that doesn't work for me, brother, and not have any other idea. Do you have an idea? No, it just doesn't work for me. Okay, dude, we'll work around you. So that was... <laughs> then Hogan blames the TBS management for taking control away from Eric Bischoff 
because Hogan and Bischoff are still close. Apparently Hogan and Harvey Schiller or who is the other fellow of, you know, uh, Francis Ford Kippola or all the other people, they're not still close, but he still likes Bischoff. So it wasn't Bischoff's fault. Basically, they sent Shitstein and Bischoff home at one point or another. Bischoff says that Shitstein, which this is true, was able to convince, and he, quoted, he was quoted as saying this, was able to convince the TBS administration that he was the architect of the Attitude Era. And that's and that's been publicly known for a while, because the the suits, the higher ups, the administration in Turner Broadcasting had no idea how the WWE worked, and how the office was structured or anything. So when they hear they have a chance to hire the head writer, they thought they were getting the whole ball of wax. And that's how that shit stain was able to con himself into that fucking job. So then they had a situation there where everybody hated everybody else. And a bunch of people had pull over other shit. So then they go to shit stain for comments. And the first words out of his mouth were setting up his excuse. Well, I went in there. And I had a target on my back the very first day. That sounds more like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, doesn't it? And I didn't say bro. Bro, I had a target on my back the very first day. I told Eleanor. I said, the only thing we have to fear is my booking itself. So then we've got Bischoff and Shitstein and Hogan going back and forth, all three bickering. <laughs> In, in separate locations about whose fault it was. But I just still find it amazing that no matter who it is that's involved and no matter what their background or their viewpoint about wrestling or their politics or their, their race, creed, color, or national origin, everybody who's ever worked with shit stain thinks he was the fucking problem and that he's an idiot. So that's, we got that going for us. So then they go through the, uh, and this is, Brian, as a person who might not have been born 25 years ago and is just watching this program, did you understand everything that happened when they covered the whole Hogan bash at the beach, Jeff Jarrett lay down, screw job, bullshit, work shoot, gaga that got people sued? You understood everything from watching this program, didn't you? I understood everything because I knew the bigger story, yeah. so I knew what to look for, but... It was probably confusing for people who had no idea what was going on throughout the whole thing. All of a sudden, yes. it was this. And and again, it just it looked fake and it looked phony, which it did at the time. But they talked about that, and the the, the then they basically spotlighted Shitstain on the clip when he was in there. He was trying to be. He had gone to a new company that he had basically pulled the wool over their eyes and convinced them that he was responsible for what had happened in the WWF. Then it, because the WWF would never think of allowing him on television as a performer or character, he's got carte blanche to do that. So there is shit stain trying to be the center of attention, the star of his show, exposing the business for his own masturbatory Shakespeare fantasies and getting them sued by Hulk fucking Hogan. 
so <laughs> but uh, this show i don't think was fair because it made it seem like that russo killed wcw by killing hogan off when in actuality he actually did so much more damage to everybody else and so many more programs and so many more careers and so much more programming. And the industry as a whole. And the industry as a whole that anything that he did to Hogan, really, he didn't do anything bad to Hogan because Hogan ended up suing and ended up actually being instrumental in getting Russo moved out of the way so that they could limp on for another, what, couple of years until they finally went out of business. Can you imagine that Harvey Schiller? Hey, Hulk Hogan's on line one. Hulk, sir, how are you? They did what? On pay-per-view? <laughs> and then he said, what? On pay-per-view? <laughs> and and they you slandered you? They slandered you? The guy with creative control and we've been paying millions of dollars a year to? By the time he called them back, Russo was sent home. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and you know, now the... Remember when Paul was Paul Heyman was being flirted with with the idea of coming to TNA, right? And he he made headlines with the first thing he said was he'd fire everybody over forty. Well, now Shitstains apparently saying that's the first thing that he said, and actually I believe he probably did because he was Paul had good intentions in TNA. Uh, Shitstain walking into WCW saying I'll fire everybody over 40 was a complete idiot and committing career suicide because he was so full of himself and knew that the brass thought he was important but can you imagine coming in having no relationship whatsoever with the biggest star in the company and the first thing you do is group him in with the people that you would fire if you had the opportunity if that were true, and he walked in and said, I'm going to fire everyone over the age of 40, just think about who's sitting there. Hogan, Macho Man, Flair, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper. Piper. I mean, it's ridiculous. How old was Brett? Brett was getting up. I mean, Brett wasn't a young guy anymore. He's probably close to 40. All these guys were well, probably no, he, it's he, like he all was, Japan was, women. They're going to be forced out at the age of 26. So then they ended up the uh, the program with covering the Rock-Hogan match where... Basically, The Rock in Toronto turned him back babyface, but it was because the people demanded it and the triumphant return of the red and yellow. But, should have uh, stayed in the black. That was the other big mistake, I thought. They should have kept him in the black as a babyface for a while. They went right. As soon as he turned babyface, he switches colors. That was so. Well, yeah, remember, and Vince insisted he have the shit flown to him because Vince always wanted his creation back. He didn't like the bizarro world Hogan. He didn't like the dark Hogan. He liked the, the colorful Hogan, the Hogan that walked toward the light. And as pork chop cash once said, once seen the light can't walk in the dark. That was when he switched babyface. And as mad boy, as mad dog Boyd said, I'm so bad. I eat Popeye. Now what this has to do with Hulk Hogan, that's anyone's guess. But I don't know. I mean, overall, I thought it was better than the, uh, what was the previous one we watched? The Flair one. As a, as a special, I thought it was better than the Flair one. But again, it was just a really rosy picture of Hogan. I don't think Cena's a really good narrator. But it's kind of what you expect. I mean, they're not going to really dive deep into anything. And for did what it was. What? What? Go ahead. I was just, did you see what's next week? No, what's next week? 
Well, this is WWE Evil. So we're talking about the greatest heels in the history of the game, right? We've seen Hulk Hogan. We've seen Ric Flair. We've seen Randy Orton. What other top he unforgettable heel in the McMahon empire are you are have we not heard from yet or heard about? Richard Belzer? <laughs> Stephanie McMahon? Oh, come on. Really? <laughs> I swear to God, that's what I saw on the listing. Don't blame me. Blame TV Guide. This should be some interesting revisionist history. You know, we have to watch this one. Well, and here's another thing. Now you're talking about a heel that never appeared on any house shows and never wrestled or worked anywhere else besides one company and only appeared on television on one of the shows for that company. You could argue she's the first great modern heel. No house show appearances. (laughs) (laughs) Just appears on TV randomly. Never gets her heat taken away. Yes, constantly emasculates all the stars at... uh, I, again, you know, I say that somebody, if they had at, at the right time, if somebody had just picked Stephanie McMahon up and given her a big goddamn killer Carl Cox brain buster, they'd have been the biggest baby face in the history of the wrestling business. Because she had some heat built up that she was annoying because nobody could ever get over on her verbally or physically. That was one of the saddest things, I think, about the last appearances of Dusty Rhodes on TV. And it's one of the few times I thought they actually kind of were getting things right with Cody years before Stardust, when they had Cody and Dustin with Dusty, and Dusty, reading the room, picks up his hand and puts it in Stephanie's face, and that was the last time Dusty really was able to do anything on his own ever again on WWE TV. That's what happened. He tried to act the way a babyface would, yeah, as opposed to standing there and taking it. That's what the writers would have you do. Because they would say, well, she's your boss, so you have to take it, and you have no alternative. But they don't understand that in the world of wrestling, the alternative that the babyface has is to punch the fucking bitch in the face. Either that or don't put her in front of the babyface, mouthing off and talking down to him. Because you cannot put a babyface in a position to be emasculated or inoculated or any of those other ladies, especially by a woman that the fans are living vicariously through the baby face and in the movies and the TV shows and the fantasies that they would have in their head with their boss, whether man, woman, child, animal, vegetable, or mineral, they want to punt that fucking person in the fucking spleen. And obviously, you can't, especially in today's modern-day environment, you can't have the baby face haul off and punch Stephanie in the face, which is why she should have never been put in a position where she was getting something over on the people that could not retaliate. Because, it, again, it emasculates them and makes them ineffective. Even if somebody had brought in a girl. Did, did we ever see, did they ever bring in a girl to tackle Stephanie and whip her ass? Because girls can still fight, right? Well, Rhonda was the one who got her at WrestleMania, remember? Okay, after so after how many years of her doing that, and that's why the Ronda Rousey debut was a big deal. Here comes Rhonda, finally gives her a taste of her own medicine. But she had backed down or backed up all those guys, all those top stars, and the people do not want to think about, well, he can't get even because he can't hit a woman on television or whatever. 
The people want to think that their heroes are not going to put up with that fucking talk from anybody. So don't put them in that position. That's the fucking root of the matter. But you know what position you could be in, Brian? No, I don't know. You could have holes in your lawn, bare spots, bare spots in the lawn. And that requires serious fucking addressing because it could spread from there. And then all you've got is a big yard full of dirt. And folks, every Sunday, you walk out on Sunday afternoon, you look at your lawn and you think, boy, that looks like shit. And you know, you try to do something good about it. But did you know, Brian? that traditional lawn care lays down 90 million pounds of pesticides each year right into our ground, right into the, the water that we drink and the earth that we grow our food in. And I know you grow half of your family's food right there in your backyard. What kind of pesticides are you putting on your yard? You could be poisoning the little ones. No wonder they've all got fucking little arms growing out their necks and what? they've got that conjoined twin on their forehead oh, will you stop it everyone there. here is healthy we don't worry about pesticides on our lawn or anything else because a Stephen p new plus b we have another option for our lawn well we did i'll tell you another thing you ought to keep track of those kids because they're out there you don't know they might be drinking out of the septic tank you might need a no. new septic tank something's going on with those children but what folks you might not have been thinking about the lawn all winter, but it's time to get started. Spring will come eventually for many of us here in this country, and you don't have to do a lot of work to get the lawn green and healthy again so you can look at it on Sunday afternoons because all you got to do is get Sunday lawn. Go to GetSunday.com. Sunday can help you grow a beautiful lawn without the guesswork or the nasty chemicals. They have a custom plan, including fertilizer and all the other stuff that you need to easily care for your lawn. They've got no nasty chemicals that are going to turn your kids orange and, and make them look like mutants from Mars as they graze on the lawn like kids are known to do. Do your kids eat a lot of grass, Brian? My kids don't graze on the lawn, but if well, they did, of because of Sunday lawn, it would be, I don't want to encourage anyone eating it. They don't graze on the lawn. Well, but if you do want to eat this stuff, it's Sunday long. No. They have ingredients like seaweed, iron, and molasses. Molasses is good. My mother always used to talk about how slow it was in January. But iron, seaweed, molasses, all these things are good. So if you want your kids to be able to graze out on the lawn or your pets, you can feel good about that. No bad chemicals. All you got to do is visit GetSunday.com, and that's Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-Y, like Sunday. GetSunday.com, put in your address. Their lawn analysis tool does the rest. That guy, I don't know why they call him a tool. He's not that bad. He's a nice guy, but he, he works on the lawn analysis. And they zero in on your yard with a satellite and use soil and climate data to create a personal nutrient plan delivered to your door when you need it. And I've had some people say, well, how are they going to figure out what I like to eat and how much is nutri nutritious for me from the soil and climate data? It's not your personal, personal nutrient plan. It's the personal nutrient plan for your yard. You're not, well, yeah, I guess you could eat this stuff. It's seaweed, iron, and molasses. Don't eat it. But, but, but spray it on your yard, though. That's preferable. At least that way, if you are going to eat any of this, use ranch dressing or some no, kind of cheese whiz. Don't eat it. 
you will attach the ready-to-use pouch that you will receive from Get Sunday to a garden hose and just spray. Just spray that thing. Just fucking, just looking like you're just an old faithful. Just spray it all around. It takes less than 15 minutes, and your lawn will be green without the nasty, treacherous, poisonous chemicals that could create situations where mutants would be roaming your neighborhood eating people's poodles. You don't want that. And right now, Sunday is offering our listeners 20% off full season plans. Depends on how big your yard is. Well, I'm still talking to them about my place because I can't get a, a hose to a lot of my area without significant extensions. But for you folks who have manageable yards, this is great. Full season plans start at just $129. You can get 20% off at checkout when you go to GetSunday.com slash JCE. 20% off your custom plan at GetSunday.com slash JCE. Who knows what you're putting on your yard right now? This stuff, tailored to it, the exact data for whether you're in Oregon or Ohio or whatever the case. And again, it's a personal nutrient plan for your yard. One guy thought you were going to have to eat the stuff they delivered and go take a shit out on your yard. That's the way it was delivered. I said, no, you're eliminating the middleman here. You don't have to eat the personal nutrient plan, you spray it out in the yard, and then the grass will be good enough to eat. And then you'll save money on on your greens and your vegetables. And you got to get roughage. Bluegrass has a lot of roughage. So you'll know when you, if you have bluegrass, you're, you're going to, and, and a nice thousand island with bluegrass is what you're going to want to go for. Some of the crabgrass, it just depends. You may have to use out of mushroom gravy. GetSunday.com slash JCE, 20% off at checkout. Well, Brian, before we talk about the AEW program this week, we have an AEW-related email, and it's something that we requested. So since somebody went to this much trouble, the least we got to do is read it, right? Uh, This is, uh, wait a minute, what now? What happened? I'm trying to, I was going to give him credit, but he's got a name in his, in his email, and then it just, but he says just from from a guy in Louisville is who this is. So I don't know the person's name. It's not because he's in my hometown that I'm reading this, but he just apparently doesn't want to be identified. But he does say, salutations, Jim and Brian. See, the trend continues. Very nice. And he even goes on further, to, per your request, Mr. Last. So apparently I wasn't involved in this at all. But per your request, I have compiled comprehensive statistics of the gimmick matches that have been featured on AEW Dynamite from 2019 until now, which will surely be outdated by next week. These stats were composed using the SmackdownHotel.com. Sounds like a wonderful place. I wonder if it's one of those Airbnbs we hear so much about. He says, I did not include matches that are standard championship matches, six-man tags, eight-man tags, ten-man tags, or matches that are qualifiers, eliminators for tournaments, championships, or prizes, unless the rules for winning are outside of normal wrestling contest parameters, or include conditions if a wrestler wins or loses. There are several gimmick matches that I denoted as special stipulation, i.e. Jericho's five labors, time limit challenges, Miro making Chuck Taylor his servant, (laughs) 
etc. Any match listed as no DQ, no countout are denoted as no holds barred. But now there's a flaw in this because there's all these other gimmick matches are also no holes barred as well. So it's there's a lot of lazy booking. But anyway, he goes on. This took some time between work and dadding to complete. So I hope you guys get some use out of my efforts. As a side note, doing this made me hate tag team battle royals even more than I already do. So are you ready for the AEW Dynamite? Now, that's just Dynamite, not any of their other shows, pay-per-views, Rampage, Dynamite, gimmick matches since 2019. Are you ready? Yeah, this should be interesting. And if this is true, give him credit for doing this research. <laughs> well, it's true. Oh, oh, yes, it's damn true. There have been six street fights, two from Philadelphia, one from Texas, one from Atlanta, and two generic. Apparently, they were in pussified locations that weren't noted for their street fights. Generia. Generia. There have been two triple threat matches, eight battle royals, six fatal four ways, two steel cage matches, one Iron Man match, five handicap matches, seven no-holds-barred matches, 18 special stipulation matches, three lumberjack matches, three falls count anywhere, three tornado tags, one gauntlet match, <clears throat> God damn, I need more breath. Two tables matches, one parking lot match, one dog collar match, one bunkhouse match, two lights out matches, one arcade anarchy match, one blood and guts match, one bull rope match, one MMA cage match, one strap match, one mixed tag, two coffin matches, two quote unquote Texas death matches, and three ladder matches for a grand total. They ain't been on the air three years yet. So that is less than 150 weeks, right? Right. 85 gimmick matches. Or an average of a gimmick, more than one gimmick match every two weeks. 1.5 or thereabouts, right? Right, because we've seen episodes with multiple gimmick matches, and then we've seen episodes with none. But those are fewer and farther between than the ones with some. And now we know that for sure. And, well, he gives the names of all the people that had gimmick matches and all their, the number of gimmick matches, which this is very long, but by year, in 2019, because they'd just come on the air, five gimmick matches. In 2020, 31. In, in 2021, 33. And in 2022, we're not even halfway there, 16 so far. That's why there's no gimmick matches, because everything's a gimmick match. You got 12 seven-foot guys, you got no giants. And the the usage of these things, oh, we're going to be in Texas. Let's have a Texas death match. Who wants to do one? That's not what stipulations are for. And it's, again, it's been so long since logic and sense was applied to this that we've just forgotten, but none of these matches have to happen. Why were stipulations or special rules created? Brian, whenever you have any simple contest with anybody, flipping a coin, and you lose, what's the first thing you say? Rematch. Or let's go two out of three, right? 
I want another chance. Let's make it two out of three. I'll beat you two out of that was the original stipulation. When when the matches were one fall to a finish and had no time limits. You lost? Well, I bet you can't do it two out of three. Two out of three falls. Or then a time limit was a stipulation. Well, you beat me in an hour and 45 minutes, but you, I bet you can't beat me in under an hour. And a lot of these, in the early days, there was betting going on. That's why this was happening. But it started out as a logical progression of how do we have another match between these two people and sell tickets to it? What is What makes it attractive after they've seen it once or more attractive? to come back and see it again. It'll turn out differently this time, or so the ante has been up. There's more money on the line. There's something else. Whatever it may be, that was the reason for stipulations. And then as things progressed, then the rules of the match came into play as far as, it, it, let's say, for example, a guy, a heel, that's getting the, his shit kicked by the babyface at long last. Babyface is about to get even. He rolls out of the ring and runs off. Next week, cage match where he can't get away. Or if somebody interferes, cage match, they can't get in. Or anything to naturally progress a program, an issue, a rivalry, a storyline, if you want to call it that, between guys from standard one-fall match to ultimate blow-off in the end. And whether a guy gets disqualified unfairly, the babyface gets disqualified because he was trying to give the heel some of his own business or whatever, next week, no DQ. Or the the babyfaces, ultimate matches. Remember when every gimmick babyface had his ultimate match where he could get even with the heels wahoo mcdaniel was an indian strap match because wahoo was an indian and he could paint the picture he could tell the story that back in the old days that's the way they settled things on the reservation the two guys that had an issue were strapped together wrist to wrist with a leather strap and you'd seen it in the cowboy movies, right? And they're, they got a knife in the other hand. But that was Wahoos, because he was an Indian. Ivan Koloff, the Russians carried chains. So his was a Russian chain match. But in, or Boris Malenko, a lot of the Russians did that. But in Tennessee, Ron Wright and Whitey Caldwell came up with the chain match as the ultimate blow-off and called it the Tennessee chain match. But one, Dory, Dory Funk Sr., the toughest man in Texas. What's the ultimate match? Pinfalls won't count. You go until one man can't answer the bell. He's had enough. He can't continue. There's no other rules. That's the Texas death match. And he got the, all those guys got those matches over because they were few and far between. They were the ultimate settling of a feud or a rivalry that people had been interested in. And they only did them when they were called for and the people remembered the previous ones. You know, for, tw for 
years in Amarillo, people would say, oh, goddamn, Texas Deathmatch. Remember the night that Dory Funk Sr. and Cyclone Negro went two and a half hours and both of them went to the hospital. That's all it took. But there was a story and a reasoning behind each one of them. If you go to other types of stipulations, it might be tied to the region of the country and what those people might like to see. The coal miners glove match was a big deal in the South and in West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky. And the story behind that was that obviously coal miners, they're in the ground digging with pickaxes, coal. They've got the gloves to protect their knuckles. They're metal covered gloves. They're loaded in effect. If you punch somebody with one of those, their lights go out. Well, how do we make this fair? We can't give both guys this deadly glove and just let them at it. So we'll have one glove, and we'll put it on a 10-foot pole in the corner of the ring. And the first guy that gets it can use it. And then, of course, every time a guy got the glove, the first time it was used, that was the finish. Because how are you going to get up from a shot with a loaded glove? Modern-day idiots, starting with shit-stain... All they got out of that was let's put something on a pole. But it was something that both guys wanted, that both guys had to fight for, that both guys knew would single-handedly win them the match if they got. Your car at stake. How many times did we used to see in the territories if a babyface would buy a new car? They'd... They'd have a tournament, the babyface would win the car, the heel would get mad and go bust his windshield out. So then they'd fight over the car and they'd win it back and forth. Or money. Loser leave town match. You can't do that anymore because everybody's too smart and they knows when know when people are going places. But that was... And there are no towns. And there are no towns to leave. <laughs> but that was one of the biggest drawn stipulation matches in wrestling especially when you had guys that they couldn't call it. You know, Lawler, everybody knew he's not losing a hair match and he's not losing a loser-leave-town match. So in his career, he lost one of each just to make sure that it would always work. And when Lawler had been there for 11 years, Dundee had been there for eight years, the people couldn't call it. They sold the fucking Coliseum out. 11,000 people just because uh, we don't know what's going to happen. So, but there, in any stipulation or rule, it has to logically play a part, be connected some way to the babyface's wrestling style or the heel's wrestling style or the position they find themselves in because of how they've got there. It has to have something involving a finish beforehand that one person has done that could never happen again in a million years, and we're going to put these rules in place to see to that. It's got to right a wrong or give people the, the idea that they're actually going to see their hero get a fair shot at this other asshole. You don't just... I've said before, the worst thing I ever did was the fucking triple threat. Because I intended to do that one time in that unique situation between Tracy Smothers, Dirty White Boy, and fucking Brian Lee, where 
you had one heel, one baby face, and one heel that was about to be a baby face. You don't come into that situation very often. I probably wasn't going to do another one of those for a few years. Now they're everywhere. The handicap match. That is a stipulation, but there have been different kinds of them. It became a thing to do with Andre just because he's so much bigger than everybody else, and it was a way to get him over. But there had been handicap matches before that made perfect sense where I'll fight you, and if I beat you, I'm going to fight that guy next. And if I beat both of you within an hour or a period of time, I win something. But it, 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 all four guys in the ring, well, they're going to goddamn not obey the referee. And we're going to have a situation where the baby faces are being ganged up on by both these heel tag team guys. So fuck it. We'll even the playing field. All four guys can be in the ring. There's a reason. We have completely lost all of this. And you've got Mark Booker's booking fucking matches for some of the guys into matches or marks because they just want to have that kind of match even if it makes no sense and the meaning and the impact of almost all of them have been lost because everybody's fucking doing them they're having girls street fights fucking hell what do you think brian i don't focus as much on the if the girls are doing it that just means it's bad i just think if it's done too often it's not good the amount that, I'm again, I'm assuming that list you read off before was correct. That's insane, because other than stuff you would have aired from house shows, well, there were some gimmick matches on Smoky Mountain TV, but in yeah. a calendar year, there couldn't have been, what, a handful? Yeah, something, and uh, Ohio Valley Wrestling, same thing. Um, There were stipulations and gimmick matches at the live events that people had to pay to see, to buy a ticket, to come out. And I know a lot of people are saying, well, now nobody buys any tickets. That's another issue even before the pandemic. But now even if they have to do it on TV, they still have pay-per-view. AEW does. Where you might want to step things up a notch when people are paying 50 bucks as opposed to free on TBS for two hours on Wednesday night. And that's what I'm saying. If you give them, all, if you give them everything on cable television and you concentrate on just spamming them as the kids say with just gimmicks and ridiculous stipulations and chaos instead of using your television to build your personalities and your conflicts then you're especially fucked when it comes time to asking them to pay for it and or if you're the wwe you want them to watch the cock well then that means that there shouldn't be inferno matches on free tv every week what were you gonna say that was what i was gonna say was just the idea that if you're building the pay-per-views too i would think it's counterproductive because if it's gonna be that big of a deal of a match hold it for the pay-per-view make someone pay for it instead of just throwing it out there on one of these shows as a throwaway as a part of yeah. the build to a match on pay-per-view and you talked about whether Smoky Mountain or OVW or Ring of Honor. We didn't do we didn't do any blood in OVW because the outlaws had killed Kentucky for that and caused the strictness of the commission. We've talked about that where we couldn't have blood at all. So we had to get even more creative with violence to give the impression that somebody had had something violent done to them 
without them actually bleeding, except if we were at a spot show out of Kentucky or whatever. There were title matches. There were handicap matches. There were basic stipulation matches, but no... And and every once in a while, I remember once in OVW, we did a tornado tag match uh, because it was April 3rd, Tornado Day. We had a couple of street fight matches. I started an OVW hardcore title in 2000 when we first got strong local television because that's when everybody else was doing the hardcore title. And we did that for a few months, and I said, you know what, I don't want to see garbage laying in my ring like everybody else's television show. We don't need that, so we stopped doing the hardcore shit. Nobody missed it. Didn't affect our business one iota. But again, you can't just fill your television on a regular basis, even if that is your main revenue producer. You're still demeaning and immuning your gimmicks and people to the effect of your gimmick matches when they see them constantly and everything's no rules, everything's no DQ, everything's fighting the crowd, everything's pull out a piece of furniture, whether it's involved or not. It's just ridiculous, and that's why guys are just hurting themselves for no reason because they pop when they see it, but they don't remember it fucking three days later. And, you know, that's here's another one. They didn't do this, actually. There's There have been first blood matches and in a more modern era, but something that they used to do in Tennessee that they don't do, they didn't do in most of the other territories and certainly don't do anymore. Do you remember the hospital elimination match? And the, it was real simple. The week before... The dastardly manager of the heels had used their cane or their boot or their book or their stick or whatever, and they had busted open the baby face and made him bleed in front of all of his fans. So this week, we're going to fucking even things up. A hospital elimination match, whether it's a tag match or a, I've seen several six-man hospital elimination matches in Memphis one night. In the summer of 83, Lawler had a 10-man hospital elimination match and put Roughhouse Fargo in it. And the rules of the hospital elimination match, yes, Cornette, what are they? Very simple. It's no time limit. It's no disqualification. If you get busted open and you start bleeding, you are eliminated from the match. you got to go to the locker room, and the, the team with the last unbloodied man wins the match. So Lawler had nine guys get juiced that night, I think, including Roughhouse Fargo, who loved it because it brought him back to the old days. But a, a, a four-man or a six-man hospital elimination match with top heels and top baby faces, they could basically, without exposing the business, promise you that you were going to see somebody get busted open and bleed more than one. And that's what fucking sold tickets. Yeah. They're going to crack that fucking Ken Ramey's head open this week and the interns too, by God. But it made sense because of what had happened before and it was guaranteeing violence without coming out and telling people, yeah, this is phony, so we're going to give you some blood. Somebody has to bleed or the match will never end. If this what? isn't hot shotting right now for modern wrestling, let's go into the idea that because there are so many gimmick matches, it's not hot shotting. If this isn't hot shotting, what is? 
No, we're past hot shotting. This is irresponsible is what this is. But no, this is chaos now. That's why the only time that a stipulation match or any kind of special rules means anything these days is when it's involving people that the fans already wanted to see that to begin with. FTR Briscoes, MJF Punk, a few of these other things, they already wanted to see it to begin with, and the stipulation made sense, so we're going to go with it, but none of these gimmicks or stipulations are making anybody want to see any of these matches anymore because they're so common, they're so ordinary, it happens all the time, you can't keep track of them, and everything's chaos. So your baseline is mad panic. How are you going to improve on that? How are we going to kick that up a notch? 85 gimmick matches on Dynamite in two and a half years. How many in just the last two and a half weeks? Well, they've had 16 in 2022, and we're at the end of April. So that's that's literally one a week. It's four a month. <clears throat> Would you like to talk about some of their gimmicks on this week's program? <laughs> we could, sure. Uh, but first, what are you doing this week on your various programs? Oh, another week of hot shotting on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. This week on Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry. Available at BaldrinPod.com, B-O-W-D-R-E-N. That is a difficult name to spell. BaldrinPod.com, or look for Breaking Kayfib or Baldrin and Barry, wherever you find your favorite shows. This week, the boys look at the top 10 films of 1997, Sammy Guevara's current role in AEW, and a review of Shinya Hashimoto versus Steven Regal, or William Regal as we now call him, from 1995. Hear that today. Look for Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, wherever you find your favorite shows. Also want to make mention, Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam at McAdamPod.com. Or look for Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam wherever you find your favorite podcast. This week on the show, once again, John looks at Georgia Championship Wrestling Television from February 27, 1982. Gordon Soley, Dusty Rhodes, Roddy Piper, Gary Hart, Tommy Rich, Buzz Sawyer, and so much more. Hear it today at mcadampod.com, or wherever you find your favorite podcast, look for Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! That's right, ring that cash register at 605pod.com. Go through the archives today. Of course, opening day Star Wars out right now, baseball and wrestling talk. Look for the 605 Super Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mothership. Yeah. Yeah. Baseball and wrestling. Who are you going to take a bat to next? In wrestling or baseball? Well, either one. In baseball, there's a few candidates. Hey, if we can, if we use baseball bats in wrestling, how come in, in fights in baseball, they never use wrestling moves? In fights in baseball, they don't use baseball bats. Well, they should. It'd be easier. Well, it's a lifetime okay. suspension. Well, there was at least one wrestling match again on this past week's AEW program. Of course, it's not going to come as any surprise to anybody who was involved in that match, the fine members of FTR. Did you see the package 
that somebody in AEW, somebody in the production crew did. I don't think Dax and Cash did this themselves. It was sit-down interviews with Dax and Cash at their homes in the mountainous region of Western North Carolina where they talked about their friendship, their careers together as tag partners from the time they started training, blah, blah, blah. And this match between the two of them to qualify for the Owen Hart tournament and how much it meant to them, how much the Hart family meant to them. It was about seven or eight minutes. And it made you not only want to see this match, but also this could have been, it could have been on Wide World of Sports. It could have been on ESPN. It didn't have to just be about a contrived and or choreographed sport. It could have been legitimate. They treated it seriously. It meant something to them. And they played that package. I saw it on Twitter. We got no on the television show that, good God, they could have taken this seven or eight minutes for this package instead of some of this other shit they foisted off on us and played that and it meant something. But instead, because they have to keep their lead in from the Big Bang Theory, they put Cash and Dax on first with no package, no build, and right before they come out to make sure that the biggest star in the company is holding that Big Bang audience, here comes Lack Mussolini on play-by-play. Punk is from out of nowhere. I know he liked to watch the match and he added to the presentation of it, but now Punk's seg is, his segment is seg one. And they got to figure out a way to get Punk out there. Brian, where have we gone that a rerun of a 10 or 15-year-old situation comedy, not even in prime time, but prime time adjacent, 7.30 to 8 Eastern, does half again the ratings of a brand new first time ever show seen in prime time, 8 to 10, and can... TBS be happy that this program that they're paying for is underperforming a lead-in from a syndicated show that they buy for less money than they're given to AEW. You don't and, know that. Uh, are you serious? What is syndication prices these days for a Big Bang Theory package? Or what do they buy? Three runs or I'm how not many sure, runs? I got to think that's one of the biggest syndication packages out there today. But aren't they paying AEW tens of millions of dollars a year? How much do you think they pay to have the rights to a show like Seinfeld or The Office or Big Bang Theory? Goddamn, one would think that something that's already in the can and is being shopped around, being sold in syndication might be a little bit cheaper than something that's being produced from scratch and airing live. But, you know, it's kind of probably the same situation for the network. Because just like the Big Bang Theory, they're not paying for AEW's production. Tony Khan is. So in a lot of cases, it's the same kind of show. Everyone's been talking about the... But they're paying AEW, and everybody was talking about six figures or whatever the massive amount was. That was over the four years. It's still a lot of money. But That's six figures. However many figures it was. <laughs> six figures counting the cents. <laughs> anyway, it just... Uh, they just go into this match with a, a great package already in the can that, that built it and made it important. They could have even edited that down a bit and made it a little shorter. And, but instead they jump right in because as I said, they're underperforming their lead in in a primetime adjacency slot, which is not good. 
and they also lose. Are they still losing people as they go along? Are they still heavier on the front end with the ratings? Maybe you can check that while I'm talking about this match. But anyway, Punk did color. It did add some gravitas to the match. It's a qualifying match for the tournament, not even first round in the tournament. And it's Dax and Cash for the first time. And the announcers mentioned that they have teamed in just under 600 matches. And I'm like, shit, how long have they been a team? Because they were in NXT together in 2016, right? And they talked about teaming for almost 10 years. So is that part of the problem now is that these guys are only getting 80 or a hundred matches a year and have even before the pandemic. And that's what, that's why it takes so long for people to get experience. When, if you just said to me, how many matches have FTR had together? I would have thought, well, six, seven, eight years, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred, even with the modern schedule. Anyway, that's one of the big problems of wrestling. You just don't get opportunities to work. I mean, there are people, not even trainees, but there are AEW stars, people on that show, when if you really stop and look at how many matches they've worked in this year on TV, it's almost non-existent. Someone just told me that about, who was it? Was it Santana and Ortiz? That they actually haven't had any matches on TV (laughs) for like months? I gotta actually check that, because we've seen them on TV. That's a difference. They haven't had a tag match. Straight tag match. They've been in peripheries and multmans and things, but yeah. I don't, but I'm, going back to the Midnight Express scrapbook, um, either incarnation of the Midnight Express hit, hit 600 matches, counting TV tapings in probably what, 20 months? One would think. Anyway, from the time that these guys locked up, wrestling. Flawless, whether running spots or mat wrestling or a little homage to Owen and Brett or exchanging holds, everything's sharp, everything's crisp, everything's perfect, the timing's in the right place. Then they worked a little spot where they were being physical with each other anyway, but Dax is pushing, or yeah, Dax was pushing Cash back in the corner and accidentally poked him in the eye with a finger and temper flared. Cash got rough, shoved him. Then they started opening up with more spots. There was a nice superplex by Dax, and then he missed a diving headbutt. They go to the break. They come back. They're trading German suplexes. They hit that sweet double cross body in the middle of the ring. Both of them went down. Then they stood up and traded real forearms that you could hear the smack of the meat in the flesh and not the little flippy things to the side of the neck from guys that don't know how to throw punches. You know, they they went through a series of roll-ups. They were trading the roll-ups. Then Dax hit that slingshot sit-out powerbomb, got a nice two-count. And they're in Philadelphia, which Punk pointed out. Philly, they love the Midnight Express, and they love FTR. Thank you, Punk, for the shout-out. But that's true. Philadelphia was the original town for smart fans to be to become prominent. And they liked the guys that could go. It wasn't just about garbage wrestling. It wasn't just about ECW and barbed wire or street fights or whatever. The original smart fans in Philly recognized the talented guys. And whoever they were, babyface or heels, and they liked them. 
And so you don't have to just feed the Philadelphia crowd garbage wrestling. They're more than that if they were allowed to be. But everybody thinks when they go to Philadelphia, they have to pull out barbed wire like they did later on in the program for absolutely no good fucking reason. And I just turned around to see that it's a FedEx truck in my driveway. So I will, <clears throat> I'll not get the gun and go down there. Um, anyway, uh, Cash hit a great pile driver and got a two count. And I was, eh, I just hate a pile driver as a false finish, especially when they looked good. And the only other thing that I criticize about the match is both went to the, the deal where they go to the top rope and they're up there for too long. It's not realistic, but that was the only flaw. And then they did a nice back suplex, but Dax landed on top for a two count, little false finish. Boom, boom, boom. They took a bump through the ropes. Cash sold his knee big and they beat the 10 count and the people in Philly again, they had chanted fight forever, which is somewhat ignorant and not what either competitor should want to do but they chanted FTR they were with the false finishes and then as Cash had sold his knee from that fall on the outside when they got back in Dax goes for the sharpshooter and hesitates just for a minute because he doesn't want to hurt his partner's leg which makes sense instead of this the conflicted shit. Should I bash this guy with a baseball bat, even though he set my mother and her cat on fire last week? That's bullshit, but you might not want to hurt your friend. And then Cash took the opportunity to small package him, but Dax rolls it through and gets a one, two, three. And it was a nice, simple, easy finish that could have capitalized on a mistake that the other guy made. Nobody is really a clear. Winner or loser in this, where one guy is clearly better, so they're still comparable as tag team partners. And when they shook hands and hugged afterwards, the sportsmanship was called for and made sense because they are partners and they had wrestled pretty much of a clean match where nobody was trying to injure a guy who's their partner and their livelihood depends on the other guy just because they're booked in a match. So again, now. FTR has had the best match we ever saw in NXT, or the best tag match at least, because Valter and Ilya Dragunov was in NXT also. They had the best match WrestleMania weekend on the Ring of Honor event with the Briscoes. They've had the best tag match we've ever seen in AEW a couple of times. And now they have a, you know, flawless singles match with each other. Was this singles match of the caliber of you know, uh, a Punk and MJF or Danielson's, you know, great main events? Possibly not. It wasn't built that way, and it wasn't supposed to be that way. But it was flawless as a wrestling match. So maybe Tony ought to have these guys booking and popping the corn. They can do everything else. What'd you think? I thought it was really good. I, You know, I couldn't get too much into it just because there was no good reason for these guys to be wrestling this match. I know they wanted to, and it's part of the tournament. There's no good reason this match should have happened. And quite frankly, the Philly crowd to me was the story because I think FTR having an FTR tag team match in Philly would have been amazing in front of that room. It would have, they would have, if they could have, my God, can you imagine what it was the, the Philly time. crowd would have done with the FTR and the Briscoes? 
Imagine what the Philly crowd would have done with FTR against anyone. It would have been a hot crowd for them the same way the Midnight Express comparison was true. I remember Halloween Havoc being there when Michael Hayes and Arn and Bobby Eaton came out and the place went crazy and the rest of the show sucked. <laughs> but that opening match was what they wanted. It was that kind of energy. And FTR would have had it and it would have gotten over real big there as a tag team. They are over real big as a tag team. So, I mean, but it was a really good match. I thought Punk was excellent on commentary. He always is. The pre-match video, I think that's one of the problems with AEW. They do these amazing packages leading up usually to pay-per-views. And you don't see them. And you don't see them. I mean, I know they air them like Friday after Rampage, but I think they're more effective for selling the pay-per-views. I think they're more effective for the storylines. And even if you wanted to mix them into the show with live matches from an arena, do it. Even the Bucks, who I'm not a fan of, whenever I've seen the Bucks featured in one of those package videos, it makes a little more sense why they behave the way they do. They're not acting completely goofy because of the nature of what kind of interview it is right, and right. everything else. I think they can't, act, they can't act like themselves in that setting. I saw it just like you did. I saw it on Twitter. And my first question was, why? Why is this on Twitter? I see some of the things that get on TV and get past the commercial break on TV. If you can't put a three or four minute video that does something like this on TV, what are you doing? Well, they th everybody lives their life on the internet just because their base audience that they refuse to grow lives their life on the internet. And by the way, the, the reason why that the Bucks act the way they do ha has been explained previously. It's because of the lack of environmental regulations on nuclear waste in Southern California during the period of time of the decade that they were born. That's been established. That was in the uh, package to build up their match with Omega and Page, I believe. Yes, that's the, the <laughs> nuclear waste segment that they did about Cucamonga is swimming in green slime. Are they lizard people? They well, they speak with forked tongues, so they very well be. It's a check. Somebody check underneath one of their wings and see if they're scaly. But then after that match, um. Obviously, Punk is still out there, so he took the opportunity to go down to ringside, and I liked this promo because he walked down to the ring and walked around the ring talking to sort of the entire crowd personally, but instead of doing it from the ring, he did it from around the ring, kept his train of thought, and delivered the message, and it was, it was, it was just, it was different. And obviously, they've announced... Punk versus Page on May 29th on their next pay-per-view, which if they wanted a world title match that would potentially sell pay-per-views, I guess this is the one that they should have because Page against anybody else ain't going to do it. But now how do they get out of this? If, if Punk puts Page over, it may hurt him. Unless, he's, Page scr unless just, he's screwed. Unless he's screwed over. Well, but then do they switch Page heel? I'm not saying by page. I mean, you know, there's plenty well, of people there that Punk has not had any interaction with. What if, just throw a name out there. What if Danielson decided to go out there and do something? I'm not saying it's going to be him, but that's one way to get the, well, so that anything, Punk could lose and it wouldn't kill him. Anything that Danielson does away from the Blackpool Combat Club, I would be receptive to. But I'm just, I, I think, you know, are they trying... Are they trying, still trying to get Paige over? And they think, well, if Punk puts him over, and Punk will be a good soldier about it. But can anybody get Adam Page over at this point? In it, except to the again to the base audience that's already there and accepts anything 
does anybody with a discerning eye or anybody that's just not, you know, entranced by AEW think that Adam Page is a world champion the way that they've got him there or what he's been doing since he got there? Or are they just going to waste a punk loss that could mean something for somebody else like it did for MJF on a Lost Cause project? We'll find out. But Punk's promo was good because he said when he came back, he wondered, can I still do this? And now he can honestly say he can. And he's warmed up and he's ready to give 100%. Without the fans, there would be no Punk. So that's why he's going to wrestle the fucking popular babyface world champion that needs all the help he can get. I don't... I, I... Great promo. I like the idea that because he had to get to the ring, they didn't waste any of the time. He got right on the mic and started talking as he went around the ring, created an interesting look. Also didn't kill any time or waste any time. And Punk's just a fantastic talker. And right here at the top of the show, we had a match that the fans were super into with wrestlers that they're into. And then Punk, who's the most over guy in every single show they do, every single week, is a good way to start the show. But, Jim, before we wrap things up, I have a little bit of news here. Yes. What you asked about earlier. Yes. Well, are we wrapping up already? Is this the end of the show? I saw more show. Well, the, wrapping up the uh, CM Punk segment. Oh, I see. Here's an article from September 17th, 2019. The My birthday. Your birthday, The Hollywood Reporter, on your birthday... The Big Bang Theory sets staggering multi-billion dollar HBO Max streaming oh, okay. deal. So again, this is HBO Max, but listen to this and then we can move on. In what is easily a record-setting five-year deal, HBO Max has secured the exclusive domestic streaming rights to The Big Bang Theory. As part of the pact with Warner Brothers Television, the multi-camera comedy created by Chuck Lorre and Bill Prady has also extended its syndication deal with TBS and will air on the Warner Media-owned Basic Cable Network through 2028. There's 12 seasons, and if I go a little further down... Jesus, it's a nine-year deal at that time. Sources estimate that the deal, including both the streaming end and syndication extension, is worth billions of dollars. Jesus Christ! By comparison, HBO Max paid $425 million over five years, which is $85 million per year, to move the mega-hit Friends from Netflix onto its own platform. So we don't have exact numbers, but north of 425 million... Have you ever tried to watch The Big Bang Theory? It's not good. It's not good at all. It's not good, not at, good all. at all. And does anybody... Uh, there are the most unsympathetic main characters because everybody's a fucking nerd or a fucking mental case. It's, it ain't Seinfeld. It ain't always sunny. It's... And the only girl on the show ain't fucking anybody. <laughs> what does that have to do with why the show's good or not? Well, it just, you know, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so anyway, the Big Bang Theory, nobody gets banged. Seriously, I thought, when that show first started, I didn't follow Chuck Lorre. I wasn't a Two and a Half Men fan or anything. So I didn't know what his stuff was. You're like, okay, maybe this is down my alley, funny geeks. Maybe there'll be some, you know, 80s nerd humor, whatever it is. But no, that show's irredeemably bad. It ain't no always sunny. That's for sure. Speaking of what also wasn't very sunny, the next match on AEW, remember we started off with a great wrestling match and the biggest star in the company doing a promo. Now here comes 
the Blackpool Combat Club, Moxley, Danielson, and Yuta, but we have solved the mystery. I just sat on the drive-thru. Where have they gone? Comarato, Solo, Agogo, they're back. Well, not Agogo. Agogo was in the corner. Oh, I didn't even notice him. Well, nobody else did either, but somebody mentioned him. (laughs) QT Marshall and Comarato and Solo with Agogo in a six-man tag with the Blackpool Combat Club, and immediately the baby faces jump-started again, immediate six-way, same shit as always, then they settle down and try to have a match. And honestly and truthfully, I'm about fed up. Brian Danielson was the best heel in professional wrestling. He was brilliant. Every week he was unmissable. Now they've stuck him in this thing with fucking Moxley the plumber and Yuta the useless and working with job guys and not being able to do his shit, but having to do this violent shit. And he never talks and he's only in the ring part of the time. And trying to zip through these matches just for when Brian gets in and out is too hard. So I wrote, fuck, he could be the AEW World Heavyweight Champion right now and the most entertaining heel in the business, but he's buried in six-man tag matches, and I didn't watch the rest of it. What did I miss? It was probably the most fun of their matches so far, but that's what you look for out of a fight club or a combat club is fun. The fans were really into it. The fans were into Utah. It's his hometown. Everyone got their individual entrance once again, eating up a lot of TV time. Because the fans were into it, I kind of enjoyed it. But I'm like you, even with enjoying it and even with thinking Yuta's all right, and I'm not a Moxley fan, you can't tell me this promotion would not be better off today if they still had the Danielson they had months ago, cutting promos, being a heel, interacting with the audience. And then having great matches. Instead, now Them he- let, letting Moxley out of the puzzle factory was the worst thing that happened to Brian Danielson. When he was there all by himself, he was stealing the show. And now if he would, it would still be petty theft. Christian is apparently still managing Jungle Boy and Dino Douche. Did you see this? And he's trying to pump Jungle Boy up. I thought they were starting to turn him on Jungle Boy because he was, yeah, you're a loser. I think that's where they're going. Why do they want to turn Christian heel? Because he's doing such great work as a baby face? (sighs) Do you think this is an effective way to use him? Any kind of heel turn would be more effective than this. He was supposed to outwork everybody, and he hadn't worked since. He's had one match in the last year, and he talks for these two numb nuts because Jungle Boy don't want to talk, and Dino Douche sounds and looks like an idiot. And then Starks and Hobbs walk in and issue a challenge. Maybe they'll be the next tag team champions. We can only hope. Starks is great on the mic. Starks is great. Hobbs is his physical backup, and they could easily be a tag team. And then FTR could work with them and teach them something. And Starks and, and they could work with Santana and Ortiz. I think they ought to just put Jungle Boy and the Dinosaur and the Hardly Boys over in the corner somewhere with a trampoline, let them work some shit out, and let the men have the tag team matches. But speaking well, of men, go ahead. You don't, have to do, you don't have to do that. Just put them in a ring of honor for a year. And then bring them back when they're fresh. Whatever ring of honor is. I was about to say, what is ring of honor now? In Tony's mind. It's a few belts on TV. It's actually become just like WCW after the WWE <laughs> bought them. 
More belts. That's what we need. Lance Archer versus Wardlow. I wanted to pick this apart, and there are a few things, but Wardlow, remember with the Butcher, right? It sucked. The Butcher is not a threat to anybody. He's never had a single match, never won a single match. We haven't seen him on television. He's just a big schlub that Wardlow shouldn't have been selling for. With Archer, at least we've got a bigger, more mobile guy that's been used and been featured. He still never wins anything, but he beats up a bunch of smaller people. But this worked better for Wardlow, I think, than the Butcher. Remember I was talking about right before you have the big match with Wardlow or whatever, you want to get him you want to give him somebody that can test him or try him or get put him in some jeopardy that he can overcome, blah, blah, blah. So with let's take the butcher out of the equation last week. That sucked. This is the one, if you're going to do one, because Archer, as I said, is big enough and he's been used well enough, but also he's got some experience and Wardlow was able to do some of his shit here. We haven't seen Wardlow do. That flying Hurricane Rana, for a guy that size, he shouldn't do it all the time or it'll look normal. But cranking it out every once in a while, that popped everybody. MJF being with Spears in the skybox, you know, celebrating what they think is going to happen is a good touch because that way they, we can see their facials. And Wardlow was all over Archer and actually showed that he could punch. They did a decent one-two exchange. Archer did that goddamn rope walk and moonsault that is the phoniest thing that he does in every match and he won't quit doing it and it buries the opponent that it works on but otherwise than that this one you know what archer hit a choke slam got a two count there was no pop on the kick out because people are have you noticed are not buying wardlow selling they're buying wardlow getting fucked around by the security or the rulings, they get into that, and they're buying Wardlow running roughshod over everybody. They do not want to see him sell, and I don't blame them. That's part of it. Did when did they want to see Goldberg sell in in 1999? How often? Well, they didn't. And actually, that's my only big complaint about the match. And I'm sorry that you know it's Archer in there, but Wardlow should have won this again in two minutes, and he came out there. He did a quick flurry that looked really impressive. You mentioned the Hurricane Rana, the way he was moving. That match would have ended right there. To me, it's perfection. You're still building him. Spears and MJF are still scared. But he had another back-and-forth match. It was the Butcher last week. Couldn't finish him off. The guy fell yeah. down on a powerbomb. Yeah. And then this week, it's Archer. I just think it would have been a lot more effective. may not have been as cool. You may not have been able to watch him walk around the ropes or anything, but... For what you're actually trying to do, what your objectives are, Wardlow should have gotten in that ring against Archer, who's a big badass, and just killed him. And he was set up for that, and then it became a back-and-forth match. I well, that see, that's why I say take the Butcher out, and he could have done a little back-and-forth this week with this guy. I could have, I could have stood that. But the back-and-forth last week with the Butcher, and then a lot of back-and-forth here, eh, but... They, sh they showed, they saw that the people don't want to see Wardlow sell. 
because every time that that was happening, they would get out of it. But then Archer tried to give him another blackout or whatever his move is, and Wardlow foiled that and hit a senton and then got back in control, and the fans came back, power bomb one, two, three, four, and one, two, three. And they were back at the end. So it, they won't lose them if they keep Wardlow selling short, brief, intermittently, and unusual. But they don't want to seem selling like Riggy Morton. Should we even talk about the the no good Jericho appreciators? <laughs> it's, Oof, this segment. I I can't even. I don't know. I was reading the newspaper. I was combing my pubic hair. The Jericho appreciators faced face with Kingston, Santana, and Ortiz. It's always the same. And Jericho's traded a group of people who in their own individual ways, had talent and didn't need to be in a group with him to another group that really has no discernible star quality talent and is just there to be his flunkies, and they're less interesting than the other guys were. And and here it is. What'd you think? Did I miss anything? Yeah, you missed a lot. I don't know why you skipped <laughs> this. Uh, of all the things, I don't know why you skipped this. Eddie Kingston was phenomenal on the mic. But and, I saw Jericho and his guys out there first. And I don't want to I don't want to see the overacting quasi macho man promos from Fat Faced 2.0, Daddy Mac Mac Daddy. And I don't want to see Daniel Garcia wandered around saying he's a sports entertainer. You enjoyed this? No, I didn't enjoy it, but of all the things for you to skip, I can't believe you skipped this. You know, it was the epitome of everything that's wrong with Jericho stuff. Eddie Kingston comes out there and does a fantastic promo and Jericho's still just hamming it up and doing his little shtick right now. And to me, it's getting lamer and lamer. Like with everything with Jericho, the first week or two, you're like, okay, it's interesting. Let's see where he goes. And then you get to this point where you're like, oh, this is terrible. And like everything else with Jericho, Kingston and them get a few words in. And then later in the night, they all get their ass kicked. That's every Jericho angle. Okay, we'll do something, and then you get your comeback, and that same episode, we kick the shit out of you. That's exactly what they did with MJF, that entire feud. And that's what they're doing now. Well, I'm just telling you. I wish they would have been booking Eddie Kingston smarter instead of just saying, oh, Jericho wants to latch onto him, let's do this. They even tried to play that up a little bit in the promos early on with this. That's what happened. Yeah, remember Eddie said, you ain't gonna... How how did he phrase it? You're not going to sap all of my heat or latch on to me and leave me laying by the side of the road or whatever, and that's what's That's happened. exactly what happened. And But now do you think that Jericho has noticed that Kingston has already cooled off so bad because they didn't capitalize on his Players' Tribune article and all the goodwill he had? So now by the time he's got this program going with the guy he thought was going to be the next hot thing, they've already botched the next hot thing's booking. Cooled him off. Might not last long. Next up, what did we talk about just a little while ago? A Philadelphia street fight. The reason for this is because they're in Philadelphia and they want to have a street fight. Serena Deeb against Hikaru Shida. And guess how the match started? A jump start with a kendo stick. I've never seen that before. If I don't watch the men's garbage matches, I'm not going to watch the women's garbage matches. There is no fucking reason to book a girl street fight match 
especially on free television, especially when Serena can work. The only girl they've got that can touch her in the ring working a match would be Thunder Rosa, and they've got her in garbage matches too. So was this as bad as normal, or did they they somehow pull something out of their hat? I didn't watch this. I don't give a shit. Okay, very good. So then... <laughs> MJF, real quick, he gets a word in the back with the interviewer, Lindsay, who corrects him as it's Lexi. And then he runs her off. It was great. And calls a guy on the phone and offers him six figures. So now we're playing with Vern Gagne money. Six figures to come and take out Wardlow. And apparently he's teased because he said the guy is so tall or whatever, and you can't teach that. It's teasing that it's going to be that big cast goofball. What do they call him now? W. Morrissey. Well, I think they use his real name. So that's what Well, but, but he did W. Morrissey. What? How the fuck is... Again, I know these guys are picking their own names these days, which makes it all the more stupid. Why would you pick... If you're a seven-foot pro wrestler, why would you pick a name that sounds like you're a member of the Velvet Underground in the 60s? What is W. Morrissey? First of all, I'm so impressed as a Velvet Underground fan. I'm trying to figure out how your mind ended up there. <laughs> now, Paul Morrissey was kind of in their circle. Plus, there was Sterling Morrison. I'm so impressed with you right now. I can't justify his name other than I'm happy you mentioned the Velvet Underground. Yeah. So... They know him by his catchphrase that he used to use in a company that he used to work for, so now they're going to bring him in to do a job for Wardlow, I guess, or whatever. All right. And then there's a blackout. Never saw that coming. And then there's a spotlight, and laying in the spotlight, all stretched out on the floor, having been roughed up and treated in an ill fashion, is old Fago Del Sol, another one of their five-foot-tall, 120-pound masked goofballs. And he's just laying there. And suddenly, into the spotlight step in the House of Black, there's Malachi Black, there's Brody King, there's what's the other fellow's name? Buddy. They're the House of Black. They're all, they're all together. And they prepare to unmask old Fago del Sol like and the fucking like anybody wants to see what this guy looks like or cares or ever wants to see him on their television again it's not like they've got like a fucking newborn baby they're trying to rip the lollipop out of its mouth but suddenly in the ring under red light as opposed to their blue light is our friend Alex. Old Alex Abrahantitis, who used to be an entertaining manager and has lately become a local cable access version of the fucking Crypt Keeper. And he's got the shovel in front of his face, but he's speaking very clearly, even though he's got a shovel in, that he's holding with both hands in front of his face. Maybe he's got a wireless mic. And he's telling the House of Black not to unmask the luchador, who's about as fucking Mexican and luchador as I am, because you can't do that to a lucha star to take his mask. 
So when he warns them not to, did you notice the choreographed start to the walk to the ring where they waited till the camera got back on them and then it was like a bad cut in a movie where they suddenly start walking all at the same time because it was their cue where they go to the ring and surround Alex. So folks, if you're keeping track, it's going to get more confusing. We had the black fellows in the walk into the spotlight that Fago Del Sol was in laying there hurt. Then we've got Alex in the ring with a shovel over his face in the red light. So all the House of Black do a choreographed walk into the ring and surround Alex, but suddenly music plays, and here comes Penthouse out on the stage. The House of Black turn their backs on Alex to look at Penthouse. That's where Jim, Jim Ross <laughs> utters the immortal line, I'd like to understand the plan here a little better. <laughs> we all would, Jim. We all would. Now Pac comes out to join Penthouse on the stage, staring at the House of Black. But then out comes Alex beside them. So who's in the ring? The House of Black do not bother to turn around and look who's behind them in the ring when they see Alex in front of them on the stage because they know that the guy that was supposed to be Alex in the ring has to take off his Alex outfit. He's got to drop the shovel, take off the hood, take off the bodysuit, and reveal that it's Penthouse's brother Felix now. When, they, when he's completely undressed, that's when they turn and Felix swings that shovel at him and some way or another misses all three of them with a six-foot shovel. He can't hit the broadside of a barn, can't hit the ground with his hat. And then they have an awkward fight with Buddy and Felix over who gets the shovel and the heels all powder to the floor and stand there immobile in the same position together so that they can watch all three of the baby faces run to the opposite side of the ring and then run toward them and jump over the top rope and dive out on top of. And that's the way this journey through hysteria ended. It was absolutely appallingly rotten. Did you understand what was going on in any of this? I did not like this at all. I think the House of Black are terrible. Every segment they're in is just trash. And Malachi Black came in. He was a pretty hot act. They had the whole spy versus spy thing going to him and Black and Cody and White. Fans got behind Malachi. He's doing cool karate moves. Then he's got some mist. Now he's got some big boring friends. They're still doing the spooky hocus pocus shit where the lights go out and they're all dressed in their Halloween outfits and they come to the ring to confront the other Halloween outfit wrestlers. <laughs> this is terrible. And and don't forget, his aim was inerringly inaccurate with that miss. Oh, he also. never got anyone in the face. Got the top of the head. Sometimes he got like a cheek. But he never got anything right. But they're terrible. I mean, the House of Black, they've made him boring, and they've also just made it so silly that I don't want to see it. In the middle of this show, a show that had FTR battling each other, like a match that existed in the real world, and Punk talking about wanting a title match, a match that exists or an angle that exists in the real world. 
the Wardlow thing, the Blackpool Fight Club, Eddie Kingston's issues with Jericho's fakeness. <laughs> and then we get the Hocus Pocus shit. This stuff is really bad. And I know they have some fans who like it. No, this is bad. It doesn't belong on wrestling. Yeah. I think Malachi Black and his boring friends should go to fucking Hollywood and find some mark to finance the horror movies they want to make and keep this off wrestling TV. Rob Zombie. He remade every other horror movie and fucked it up. He might as well do that. But I don't know if he's a money mark for horror movies. There's a difference. Well, and I'll tell you, again, maybe this is why they're constantly in the dark, because they know that it sucks, and they don't want people to get a good, <laughs> close look at it. So that's why they're always in the dark. <laughs> and thought about that. Let's cover that shit up. Don't. You're, you're trying to sell this substandard product. Control the lighting. Subdued lighting. Don't let anybody get a good close look at it. They had an interview segment with Swerve and Darby because they're fighting each other on Friday. I Again, I can't remember now. Swerve's supposed to be a babyface. Yes, because he was aligned with Keith Lee. Okay, so now they're fighting each other for no reason. And I, I noted that I heard Darby speak. I said, Darby shouldn't speak when he's on Somas. And then I wait a minute, he's straight edge and doesn't take drugs. So Darby Allen shouldn't speak while boring. And they have Sting there to be with Darby. And you want to talk about AEW wrestlers, they've cooled down. Explain to me the way Darby's been used the last six months or so. Doesn't make any sense. He was so over. Him and Sting always get a big reaction. There are things you could do with him. Because he's a smaller guy, but he lays his stuff in and he, as silly as, not silly, but as wacky as his character may seem, it seems like it's the real fucking guy. Yeah, he really is a lunatic. And they really haven't done anything. He's been stuck in the thing with Andrade and the Hardy family and then the Hardys themselves. Now they're not even on TV after that. Well, see, th think about this, though. Guys are more over when they come to AEW than they are after they've been there a while. They're always more popular. They get better responses from the crowd. It's new. It's exciting. It's different. The people want to see them. And then they see how they continue to be booked. And then they get less popular, less over, more routine, commonplace, less exciting. Because of the matchmaking, instead of, you know, that's normally it works the other way. But when you go to AEW with that smart crowd, you're as, as popular as you're ever going to be. If you've ever been heard of before, if you've never been heard of before, you got no place to go but up. Speaking of no place to go but down, a 10 man tag team match followed this. Stuff we've been talking about. Bobby Fish, Kyle O'Reilly, Adam Cole, and the Hardley Boys against Brian Pillman Jr., Griff Garrison, Brock Anderson, Dante Martin, and old shoddy Lee Johnson. Pillman had a chance. That was long ago and oh so far away. Janie was lovely. She was the queen of my nights. They're in the darkness with the radio playing low, but he don't have a chance now because he's been around too long. And I don't know what, poor Dante, they're just going to stick him in the middle of all this since his teams broke up again, and they're not going to send him away somewhere to let him get older and grow up and learn to work and use that incredible athletic ability. They're going to keep throwing him out here and learning him some bad habits until 
He hurts something and he's gone. So they had a tag, 10-man tag team match here for the finish. The corpse referee, old Knox, stood there and watched while four of the heels grabbed Lee Johnson and all did like the ring around the Maypole Rosie and gave him the shitty knee lift and then Adam Cole hit his knee, one, two, three, and pinned him so flat, buried the referee. There was no reason for everybody to beat up one job guy and make it illegal and bury your referee and make the whole thing. It just That's what they do because they don't know any different. Did I miss any incredible revelations on anybody's talent in this 10-man tag team match? I didn't watch it terribly closely because, <laughs> you, know, why? you know what? It's Adam Cole at this point. It's not the Bucks. Certainly not Kyle O'Reilly. Fish, I could take or leave. But Adam Cole, I was a fan of him in NXT, and now I don't want to see any of his shit anymore. And you knew what the result of this match would be. Yeah. Forgive me if you mentioned, did you mention Arn Anderson just standing there doing nothing at ringside? Oh, I forgot Arn Anderson standing there at ringside doing nothing because that's what he's been doing since he's been there because they like the idea of having a legend. They just don't have anything for him to fucking do. At least he was holding the Waffle House menu with Cody and, and fantasizing about some scattered, smothered, covered, diced, and chunked. How do you like your Waffle House potatoes? I have not been to the Waffle House or a Waffle House in a very long time, and I don't remember having their potatoes. You've never had the Waffle House hash browns. I've had, I've insisted on Waffle House cooking me French toast, even though it's not on the menu. Oh, good God. Waffle House hash browns scattered, smothered, and covered, crispy, but not burnt. Otherwise, you are a heathen, sir scattered smothered if it's covered with cheese i wouldn't want it but whatever well, else they got well that that is that's they're scattered on the grill they're they're actually smothered with cheese and then covered with onions well call me a it can also be diced with ham Ugh. and chunked with uh tomato and a whole nine yards uh in the parking garage there was the japs the jericho appreciators and we haven't seen enough of them because now they have in the garage that we find out they've already beaten up Santana and Ortiz and then they're holding Kingston and Jericho's fumbling with something and he threw or tried to throw. He did throw the fireball. He tried to throw it at Eddie Kingston and set the top of his head on fire. He missed his face and it landed on the top of his head. Chris, your wad was a little tight. That's what the problem was. If you want the fireball to not only spread out wide, but also float upward, then don't wad your paper so tight. You wadded it too tight, and when you lit it, you just flew it, and it went straight across and sat on his head and then fucking disappeared. But they set Eddie Kingston on fire now. Does that count? On the same show as a stipulation or gimmick match on the same show as, let's see, a girls' Philadelphia street fight, a ladder match, a 10-man tag. Uh, now they, uh, the 
the mugging of the the uh, House of Black, whatever happened there. And is there anyone in that company with the balls to say to Chris Jericho, "We're not doing your stupid shit today"? Apparently not. I mean, it's not Tony Khan. Somebody would. Does anyone who works with Chris Jericho have the balls to say we're not doing whatever your bad ideas are? Use them next time with someone else. We're not doing them. It's it's good ideas, bad ideas. It's all. It's every idea. He has every idea to do everything that's ever been done. All of them. All of them have the idea to do everything that's ever been done, whether it's called for or not, whether it means anything or not, whether it applies to the situation or not. This Eddie Kingston feud has been such a waste of all of Eddie Kingston's momentum, been a waste of Santana and Ortiz. I like Garcia a little more than you. Now I don't want to see him anymore. (laughs) Now I don't want to see him anymore. Hey, a lot of people now, uh, they're talking on Twitter and they're making comments on YouTube. You know what? This guy, Daniel, Daniel Garcia, has yet to win one match on television, but yet he's on every show every week working with main event guys, and we can't get away from him. We can't find fucking Hobbs with a magnifying glass. But we can't get a- away from Daniel Garcia. I'm telling you, every single time that a babyface team has ever risen up against Jericho and his crew, and again, it was even a heel team, they get one over on him, either with an attack, which Jericho and his crew immediately turn into them winning the attack, or a promo, and Eddie killed Jericho in the ring. Eddie was so real, and Jericho got faker and faker, and it was just so bad. But you know what? It hurts Kingston. It because does. Every, every this time whole thing that is he's real, him. and every time he tells somebody something's going to happen, and it don't happen, and he don't do it, and nothing, and, and he just gets... His mouth pissed in again. I'm so mad you didn't watch this promo. In the promo, Jericho, who again, he's so hokey right now, tells Kingston that we're going to put a hit on you. Kingston, to his credit, reacts the way someone from where we're from, this area, would react if something like that said, if you know people who don't play around with that kind of shit. What Kingston said was, if you intend to say that to somebody where I'm from, then we intend to put somebody in the ground. Are you ready to do that? But but no, but Eddie's not going to be allowed to even put this guy to the ground, much less in the ground. And then Jericho got more and more silly. And again, it ends with Kingston and his guys looking all right. By the end of the night, once again, Kingston got beat down. Once again. I mean, it's just... <laughs> and set on fire. And set on fire. Are they going to burn his eyebrows off? When he comes back, his eyebrows gone? <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. No, because he didn't hit him in the face with the fireball. And finally, we come to the main event of the evening. And a lot of people have said, oh, Cornette, what do you think about that? Well, you can imagine what I thought about this. But again, this is just ridiculous. A ladder match for the TNT TV title. This long-running program settled in a ladder match between Sammy Guevara and Scorpio Sky. They've had one other match. And now last week it was made a ladder match, as we saw, and this is for the TV title. Sammy just won this thing, right? I was going to say they've had more than one match. Yeah, because the title's gone back and forth a few times. No, I thought they had the match where Sammy just won it. They have two matches? Well, Sammy won it from Cody, Scorpio won it from Sammy, then Sammy won it back from Scorpio, so there's match two, and now... There's two matches. This is match three. Well, regardless, ladder match, and guess how this thing started. You're never going to guess, Brian, in a million years how they started this match. Collar and elbow tie-up? Jump start on the floor. (laughs) 
And and Sammy's got his little girl bitch face with him. Good old Ty, Ty Conti. Um, God, the facials that she's got is just amazingly heat getting. And just them embracing it too, them making out on the stage. Yes, and, and the the anteater tongues and the whole thing. The people hate them. But now here's the thing: there's Dan Lambert <laughs> in Scorpio Sky's quarter, and the, all the stuff that Sky and Paige and Lambert have been doing for months to be heels, and suddenly that's eradicated in the twinkling of an eye because anything is preferable to these two fucking juvenile delinquent street urchins that the people have come to despise. So they fought on the floor endlessly. And I don't, who is the baby face that I'm supposed to cheer for here? Who am I supposed to be rooting for in this match? There is none. So it's just watching. At first, they didn't have any ladders in the ring. That's why they didn't get in the ring. They didn't use the ring. They used the floor. Then finally, Scorpio runs and gets the ladder off the stage and whacks Sammy with it and puts it in the ring. And then Sammy German suplexes Scorpio Sky on the ramp and lays there and makes snow angels. He gets heat even with me. But finally, they get in the ring. And then they start fighting on the ladder. And they do one spot where Sammy climbs the ladder. The ladder is in obviously the wrong place. There's no way he can climb the ladder and snatch the belt. The ladder is too far over. It's not underneath the belt. But he's climbing. He sees where he is, but he's climbing it there because it's to set up the next spot. And then he turns and sees that he can't reach the belt. And Sky is down at his feet at the bottom of the ladder, so he does the finger finger twirl like I'm crazy. And he turns his back and then just leaps and does a turning, flipping cannonball off the top of the ladder from 10 feet up and drops right past Scorpio Sky, lands at a heap at his feet, and Scorpio Sky takes a bump anyway. Besides the fact that he nearly killed himself, and it's, it's his fault, so, you know, goddamn, can't grieve forever, Sammy. If you want to break your own neck, I'm not going to cry about it. But at the same time, there was no move that was going to be made. There's no way to catch somebody coming like that. He from, uh, from facing away from Sky, he does a turnaround and a flip and a twist, and he's coming from 10 feet in the air. So what part of that did Scorpio Sky or anybody else want to get under? To have their face bashed in with an elbow or a knee or a foot or whatever. So dipshit lands right next to him, and then Sky's got to just fall over anyway. The pointing to the head, I'm crazy, hand signals become my favorite part of the Sammy Guevara repertoire. Because even this time, he's on top of the ladder, and he looks down, and he knows this is stupid. Yes. And it wasn't even like an enthusiastic, I'm loco, I'm crazy, we've seen that before. This was kind of like, I guess I better show them. Yeah, I'm doing this because I'm crazy. <laughs> but he did it. But it, it wasn't a move. It was nothing. It was there an was injury. Nothing. It was. It was an injury. Just, That's yeah, an what it injury was. that didn't happen. Luckily for him, and unfortunately for everybody else. Apparently, he did get hurt. I think that was the movie got hurt on. Well, good for him. Maybe he won't do it anymore since it didn't accomplish anything, and there was nobody there for him to even land on if he had of. So then they go to the break. 
When they come back, there's two ladders in the ring, a short one and a tall one, or a shorter one and a tall one. And Sammy, while Sky is climbing, Sammy jumps off the top rope to the top of the short ladder and off of that toward Scorpio Sky, who catches him with a cutter. And down they go. But Scorpio Sky, landing that fairly perfectly, now Sammy's out. So Scorpio doesn't just climb the ladder and get the belt and win the match. He gets out of the ring while Sammy's laying there selling and pulls out from underneath the ring a ladder wrapped in barbed wire and slides it into the ring. Where do you buy that? You, apparently in Philadelphia at the Home Depot. They have the, the extra special barbed wire ladders. What is that? Again, just because they're in Philadelphia, they want to get the people to chant ECW, so they want to get the people to chant the name of another wrestling promotion. And they want this 90s stupid shit that was way past played out 15 years ago to still continue. All these fucking gum-bumping street urchins out there think I'm behind the times when the shit that I advocate for is timeless. Everybody that thinks they're with the times is still hooting and hollering over this played-out, boring, blasé, 90s ECW grunge barbed wire bullshit that was over for about fucking two weeks to me and about two years to everybody else, and then it became stupid and repetitious. So here comes the barbed wire ladder. And here is the baby face that I'm supposed to cheer for against Sammy, the delinquent. He had a chance to win the match, climb the ladder and get the belt, but he didn't do that so he could get out and pull out a barbed wire ladder and put it in the ring. And the first thing that happens is Sammy bumps him into it. So talk about making your nominal baby face as big of an idiot as possible. There you go. But then Ty Conti gets in the ring and kicks Dan Lambert in the balls and the place blew up. Just exploded. They like a good ball kick. Then here comes Paige Van Zant, and she jumps in the ring and she has a hockey fight with Ty Conti. We haven't seen her in weeks, have we? Well, no, but there she was. She just trying to find a place to park the past few weeks. And then Sammy has a hockey fight with Scorpio Sky after they've taken all these bumps. Suddenly they're up fresh and there's two sets of hockey fights. And then both sets of baby faces, Paige Van Zant and Scorpio Sky, and I use the term baby faces very liberally because they're heels too. They turn around and celebrate kicking the shit out of the other heels. And both Sammy and Ty Conti just jump up and super kick each one of them once, and they sell forever. And now Sammy and Ty go out and get the wire ladder that after they bumped on it before, somebody pulled it out of the ring onto the floor. They get it and put it back in. There is nobody trying to win this match. It has completely fallen apart. There is no drama. There's no logic. The, now the amateurs have taken over with Lambert and the girls, and it's just a mess. And JR at that point says, wow, what a compelling ladder match. 
And Tony's response is, watch the girl on the left. So this whole thing is degenerated into complete shit. Just raw sewage. Make your eyes water. Now each guy gets on one side of the big tall ladder and starts climbing each side of the ladder with his, the other guy's girl on his back. And they get to the top and realize the girls are punching each other and then the girls drop off. And, and they just roll out of the ring. And Sky, Sammy gives Scorpio Sky the finger and Sky starts biting it. And he knocks Scorpio Sky down to the mat, but Sky tips Sammy, ladder and all, off onto the barbed wire, and he lands back first. Now we determine that it's not even real barbed wire. Because if Sammy Guevara landed back, bare back first from off the top of a ladder onto that barbed wire, and he wasn't ripped from asshole to appetite, it's phony barbed wire. And then, but then taking the bump into the barbed wire, Sammy jumps back up on the ladder and Sky knocks him off again. And then he just gets the belt and wins the thing back. So now they've changed it again. And Scorpio Sky is the TV champion. And Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon's reputations are safe. As a ladder match, this was certainly not one. What'd you think? You know, I'm I'm over ladder matches. I mean, this is the second Sammy ladder match this year. The TNT title means less than it ever has before, and I said that a few weeks ago, and it means less now. Sammy's an idiot. Being able to do those things and applying them to wrestling is one thing. Being able to do those things and just doing them, whether they make sense or not, under the guise of, I'm crazy. I don't know about that. To me, I like the early portion of the show with the wrestling-heavy stuff. The stuff that feels like classic wrestling, punk, the FTR match. I even like the Blackpool uh, Combat Club this week. I still want to call them the Fight Club. But this is AEW. You're going to get this kind of train wreck to end the show. I still want to know from somebody on the inside, we need to, to plumb our moles and our sources. Did they intend to switch Sammy uh, Guevara heel or did he just start, unbeknownst to what he was doing, him and his little girl, did they just start acting so insufferable and the people start booing them that Tony decided to go with it? I want to know which came first. I think it's the that. Idi- the idiot or the egg? I think it was the egg. Well, is that the egg? No, I think that's the idiot. Oh, so it was the idiot, I think. Well, see, now you know which came first, the idiot or the egg. At least we know Sammy's getting laid. At least we know that. At least we know that. All they, right, you I'll... know what? If he is hurt and out for any uh, period of time, I feel bad, although he did that to himself. It's like not even like, oh, it was a bump that went wrong. I don't know what he was thinking or what he was doing. <laughs> but beyond that, him and Ty Conti as heels, as young heels, who are always like on spring break or whatever their gimmick is. Yeah. <laughs> there is something good there. Get them away from the Lambert thing because it's confusing to people. And quite frankly, I still don't think people care about Scorpio Sky or Lambert. Ethan Page's potential, but they haven't shown that they're going to do anything with that. But do something different with Sammy and Ty. Get them booked with someone different. Do something new. 
They and, gotta- and, and give them the chance to give them a couple of underneath baby faces so that they can not only do all their shit and get the heat that they're getting because they're obnoxious asshole spring breakers, but let him beat some people convincingly while they do it. And some people that are baby faces that the fans are supposed to like instead of, Oh good. Sammy's bitch girlfriend kicked that no good piece of shit. Dan Lambert in the balls. There's no and then, hero yeah, and then, here. And then Paige Van Zandt, who we were last cheering when Jericho was calling her a slut, we were booing yeah. her. Yeah. Now she's out there. And sh- is she the baby face? Apparently. Anyway, are we done here? I think we're done. They were done. I was done at that point. I think we are done. I just, I'm debating whether or not I can name the show the idiot or the egg, or if it's too late in the show to use that as the name of the show. Well, they'll just have to sit around and wait to see where it comes up. Which came first, the idiot or the egg? And halfway through this show, they're going to say, am I the idiot? I've been sitting here <laughs> waiting for the answer. <laughs> exactly. Egg. All right. The egg. All right, Mr. F- Mr. Uh, Vincent Price, egghead. Um, we're done with this one, but we're going to have another one shortly coming up thereafter because we always do this time it's going to be your show on the drive-through in just a few days correct that is correct the very 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 popular drive-through otherwise known yeah. as jim Cornette's drive-through will be back at you with lots and lots and lots and lots of questions and it's very popular because people can just go right through without stopping they like it that way i wish i could go through some of these tv programs without stopping Anyway, that's it for the experience this week, folks. We we love you all. Thank you so much for joining us. If any of you are still around at this point, and be sure to come back for Brian's show, The Drive Through. Subscribe to Official Jim Cornette on the YouTube machine. We're at two hundred ninety three thousand subscribers today. Two ninety three and three hundred and something, by the way. And we're going to that three hundred thousand. And JimCornette.com. Get fucked by the feather feather bottoms with the fuchs. feather bottoms fucked, not fuchs. The feather bottom ultra careful handling system will fuck your package at jimcornet.com. Closing thoughts, Brian. We hope you enjoyed this presentation of lizard people, fucks, and ladder matches. We'll be back with more next week. And until then, in the meantime and in between time, thank you, fuck you, and bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey, Mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Everyone should get Well everyone
Says I'm in the key. 